fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with the right corner, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. How you doing, Malik? I'm good. It's Tuesday morning. It is Feeling Tuesday. Good. Trying to approach the hump. Yes. Doing yes. our best to get over it. Um, if we were discussing the lefties that basically came out for um, saying that the president needs to discuss this Ukraine policy. Yes. And what was your answer? Uh, midterms. Midterms. <laughs> midterms. There it is. Midterms. Well, we can talk about it in a minute. I'm yeah. going to go ahead yeah. and get to some breaking news. Rishi Sunak has officially become UK Prime Minister after King Charles III asked him to form a new government during their Tuesday meeting. Sunak emerged as the sole contender in the Tory leadership race on Monday after his rivals Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson both pulled out. The country's third prime minister in a year was announced shortly after shortly after by Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tories. During his Monday public address, Sunak pledged to bring our party and our country together because that is the only way we will overcome the challenges we face. Earlier on Tuesday, King Charles III accepted the resignation of Liz Truss, who only lasted 44 days as UK Prime Minister. Not as long as the lettuce. In domestic news, on Monday, 30 Democratic lawmakers from the U.S. House of Representatives, led by Premier of the Representative Jayapal, chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, wrote to President Biden, urging him to alter his Ukraine strategy and hold direct negotiations with Russia? Quoting, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. The group of pro progressive House Democrats who urged President Joe Biden on Monday to make fundamental changes to U.S. strategy regarding the security crisis in Ukraine by seeking direct negotiations made a U-turn within hours of sending their letter to the pre president. Under a wave of pressure by from other Democrats, the group, led by Congresswoman Jaya Paul, released a statement confirming their support for the president's strategy. Let me be clear. We are united as Democrat in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for their democracy and freedom. Jaya Paul announced, adding that nothing in the letter advocates change in that support. The statement went on to say that although diplomacy is an important tool that can save lives, it is just one tool. Things like someone got into Representative Jaya Paul's ear, maybe Nancy Pelosi, and said you need to change your own strategy. Democrats are at risk of losing their legislative majority in Congress as Republicans challenge for control of both the House and Senate in midterm elections two weeks away from today on November 8th, although the upper chamber fight could come down to the wire. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives will be contested alongside 35 Senate seats to determine which party will lead the legislative process through the second half of U.S. President Joe Biden's term. 
The elections come amid issues such as historic inflation, the conflict in Ukraine, and the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to return abortion regulation to states, all of which are expected to play a role in the outcome of the midterms. Note, Democrats are not just at risk of losing their legislative majority in Congress, they will lose Congress, the House, Senate, it's a little iffy, but the House, Republicans will win that. A somewhat but not surprisingly dazed U.S. President Joe Biden, who's 79 years old, appeared to lose his way to the White House following a tree planting event on the South Lawn on Monday, Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden planted a ceremonial elm tree in the afternoon honor, in honor of Dale Haney, superintendent, superintendent of the White House grounds, who earlier this month celebrated 50 years on the job. Footage showed that as the ceremony ended, Biden started walking in one direction, but suddenly stopped seemingly confused, asking his security where do we go? As his staff ushered him onto the right course back to the White House, the Democratic president is heard saying he wanted to go in a different direction. In more domestic news, the U.S. Secretary, United States Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, called the test scores a wake-up call after test results from the National Assessment of the Educational Progress showed historical declines in math and reading scores for fourth and eighth graders, which Cardona has called appalling and unacceptable. The results in today's nation's report card are appalling and acceptable. This is what he told Republicans. The moment of truth is now for education. How we respond to this will determine not only our recovery, but our nation's standing in the world. Results from the NAE exams show a steep decline in math and reading scores among fourth and eighth graders. Peggy Carr, who is the National Center for Education Statistics Commissioner, said the math scores were historic. And the largest decline in mathematics has observed in the history of this assessment. Seems like those COVID policies are having a direct impact on our students. The Biden administration on Monday urged U.S. Congress to pass a ban on the so-called assault weapons as soon as possible after another deadly shooting occurred in a school in St. Louis, Missouri. Quoting, every day that the Senate fails to send an assault weapons ban to the president's desk or waits to take another action is a day too late for families and communities impacted by gun violence. White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters on Monday. St. Louis Police Lieutenant Colonel Michael Sack said on Monday that the three individuals have been killed, including th that three individuals have been killed in the incident, including the gunman. In a Monday press conference, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced 13 three new federal cases against 13 individuals, 12 of whom are accused of being Chinese government agents. Garland's appearance was notable as he was accompanied by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, 
FBI Director Christopher Wray, and Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson. Quoting, over the past week, the Justice Department has taken several actions to disrupt criminal activity by individuals working on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, Garland said. In international news, Iranian Armed Forces Chief of Staff Mohammad Bagheri has told Brussels what, he, what it can do with any assets of his that it happens to find after having his name added to the bloc's latest sanctions package. Quoting, I have a humanitarian proposal for the UP European Union. From today, I give them the power of attorney in implementing the sanctions they prepared, allowing them to identify and confiscate all the properties and assets belonging to Major General Mohammed Hossein Bulgari and banks around the world and use them to buy coal for Europe's citizens who face a tough winter ahead. The commander quipped in a statement put out on Sunday. Bulgari said he understands why the U.S. and the EU have sanctioned him, giving that since the victory of the Islamic Revolution, the armed forces of the Islamic Republic were included in various sanctions lists or turn this threat into an opportunity. French President Emmanuel Macron has urged Washington to start negotiations to stop the Ukrainian crisis. Quoting, we need the United States to sit down at the negotiating, at the negotiating table to advance the peace process in Ukraine. Macron said, speaking to reporters after his visit to the Vatican, pointing to the relationship of trust between Pope Francis and Biden, who was Catholic, Macron suggested that Pope Francis can influence him so that the United States resumes its involvement in resolving the crises in Haiti and Ukraine. So it's not just Democratic progressives on the left who want Donald Trump, um, oh, who want Joe Biden to uh, negotiate uh, the crisis in Ukraine. Seems like that Macron wants it too. In more international news, French lawmakers on Monday failed to pass two motions of no confidence in the government lodged by the leftists and right parties after the prime minister forced a controversial budget bill through parliament. Yale Braun, Braun Pivet, the president of the lower house National Assembly, Assembly said the motion filed by the leftist coalition Noops won 239 of the required, well, of the required 289 votes, while that of the four right far-right national rally 190. In a rare move, lawmakers from Marine Le Pen National's rally, national rally backed the rival motion despite her initial refusal to endorse it. Moscow considers unacceptable the fact that the United States had not issued visas to the Russian delegation to the IAEA International Ministerial Conference on Nuclear Energy in the 21st century. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zarkova, Zakharova said, the conference will be held in Washington from October 26th through the 28th. That is this week. The Russian delegation comprising representative of state corporation Rosatom and technical watchdog. Ro wow, gee, this is a, this is a doozy. Rostaknadzor. Rostek Nodzor, our producers will tell me if I'm right or wrong, plan to take in part of it. 
The United States has never issued visas to the Russian delegates, despite the fact that they were relevant that the relevant applications were submitted by them in advance in accordance with the established procedures. Thus, Russia, Russia's participation in an important international event under the auspices of the IAEA was blocked in an absolutely unacceptable way without any reason. Zakharova said in a statement. More international news, the Israeli troops have conducted an operation targeting the, Lion Den, the Lion's Den group responsible for the attacks on Israeli forces in the Palestinian city of Nablus, Nablus, located in the occupied West Bank, which prompted clashes with the Palestinians, the Israel Defense Forces IDF said on Tuesday, quoting, IDF and Israeli security forces raided a hideout apartment in the Kasbah of Nablus, used as a headquarters and explosive manufacturing site by the main operatives of the Lion's Den terrorist group. The force detonated the explosive manufacturing site, the IDF tweeted. The IDF also said that during the operation, multiple armed suspects were hit and Palestinian report indicate that there were multiple injuries adding that the Israeli troops responded with live fire toward the armed suspects shooting at them. Argentine President Alberto Fernandez discussed with the Chinese company the construction of railways in an Argentine provinces, the president's office said on Monday. President Fernandez met this afternoon with the head of China Railway International Group, CRIG, to evaluate various infrastructure energy and technology projects within the frameworks of Argentina's accession to China's Belt and Road Initiatives, the statement said. Argentina and China discussed such projects as the modernization and electrification of the suburban railway service, the construction of roads between the provinces of Chaco, Chaco and Corrientes and Santa Fe and Entre Rios. In tech news, with Elon Musk reportedly poised to finalize his deal and purchase Twitter for a whopping $44 billion before expiration of the court deadline on October 28, the social media company is under increasing pressure, Axios reported, citing Twitter insiders. The drawn-out and dramatic takeover saga has taken its toll, making it tough to carry on with business as usual, according to insiders cited by the outlet discussing long-term plans with clients and vendors has become particularly challenging amid the uncertainty, Twitter employees said, adding, people are just exhausted. It can be conflicting because as a shareholder, you're happy, but as an employee, there is a lot of uncertainty. On this day in history, 1854, the infamous charge of the Light Brigade during the Battle of Balaklava in the Crimean War results in over 100 killed in 1962. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Adelaide Stevenson demands USSR U.N. Rep. Valerian Zorin answer regarding Cuba missile bases saying, I am prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over. And in 2017, Chinese Premier Xi Ping, Xi Jinping unveils his new ruling council in the Great Hall of People, 
none of the five are young enough to succeed him. These are your headlines for today, Tuesday, October 25th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on. Long list of headlines today. I'm going to cut that in half. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. At the 8 o'clock hour. But was able to park. No issue. Found a parking Look space. So I'm safe and comfortable on that front. Um, and I definitely want, we're going to have Wyatt at 7.30. Okay. Um, part of that conversation, I definitely want to get into the politics of the lefties basically coming out saying, hey, maybe we should talk about this war stuff. Fascinating. And like you said, midterms. Yeah, it's, of course It's it is. super weird that they just coincidentally come out with this new position after, what, eight months? Just so happened when the midterms are around the corner. What do well, you know? Well, they said, and, and I don't know because you had stepped out, so they almost retracted their statement. Mm. Yeah, so they came back. Somebody must have gotten into their ear. I said Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Somebody got into Mama their Bear, ear. cut it out. Them, cut it out. And so they went back and made a statement saying that they support the president's position and what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. It's BS. Good luck with that. Yeah. I mean, because BS. basically what you're saying stick, is you're supporting. what you said at first. Yes, you're supporting high gas prices. You're yes. supporting this increase in inflation. And the wild part about that is I don't think they quite get it, or maybe they do get it, which is why they came out with this statement. Those things are intrinsically linked. And this was the one of the squad leaders. Yeah. Who came out? Jayapal. Yeah. Representative Jayapal. Yeah. What is Progressive Caucus? Headed Progressive Caucus. Mm-hmm. At least she was. Mm-hmm. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Walk the statement back very quickly. Um, you guys are listening to the Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm Malik Abdul. We're coming back. I want to have a conversation about the dirty bomb thing. Because the more I think about that, the less I think that that can be ignored. I actually think that's a real and legitimate concern. And I'm going to give you my explanation as to why. Fault Lines. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to talk about the dirty bomb thing. A lot, to be honest, a lot of this conflict has been disconcerting to me. Because I know that wars have a tendency to expand. When we go back to the First World War, you had basically what was a regional conflict. And based upon the alliances and everything else, that regional conflict exploded into a First World War. And whatever you want to think of the Second World War, our world right now, currently, is set in the context of what took place in that First World War. Do we believe that countries that are facing existential crisis wouldn't stoop to levels that are also extreme? Meaning... The, the, um, meaning anxiety, or for that matter, this notion that you are under some level of threat matters. And it's going to shape your world and point of view, and it's going to shape the decisions that you basically make. Essentially, desperation breeds desperate acts. In this situation, the United States takes a position that if we are under threat, meaning if we are in a situation where the existence of the government of the United States itself is in question, Nukes are on the table. That is our position. When presidents say all options are on the table, what do you think they're saying? And the reasons they're saying it that way is this kind of veiled threat of nukes may be used in this situation. We're not taking that off the table. Even though many times when they make that, they say something like that. It's extreme and it doesn't entirely apply to the situation it's presented with. Well, Russia, Putin basically made the same thing. I would point out that any state that has nukes 
and his state is in question, they will be willing to use those nukes. It's part and parcel to the reason they're talking about tactical nukes and all this other nonsense, because they want to try to lower the threshold by which you can use a weapon of such. There is no way to lower that threshold. The moment that you use a tactical nuke, you've basically used a nuke. What I'm getting at here is that it seems as if Western nations, or for that matter, um, people back in Ukraine, expect it to die quietly. It's like, yeah, you're losing your territory. Yeah, the existence of your state in and of itself is in question, but die quietly. Now, the U.S. and Western leaders have basically said this is not true. We had Russian defense minister, Sergei Shogu, basically contacted American, French, British, and if I'm not mistaken, Turkish colleagues over this very specific issue saying, hey, we have evidence that they are doing this or that they are planning for this. They're in the last stages of this. You need to get your boy in line. It's like, hey, you need to get Ukraine in line. This is going to escalate this in a way that is going to be unpredictable and that you are not going to want to deal with. Now, all of the other Western nations said this is nonsense. This isn't taking place. This isn't true, et cetera. Now, that's what they're saying outwardly. Inwardly, all of them full well understand that from the Ukrainian perspective that this is an existential conflict. By the way, from the Russian perspective, it is also an existential conflict on both ways. But the difference is Russia was using an expeditionary force working with the Dumbass republics and was able to take 20 percent of the territory. And at this point, seems to be holding on to those gains and making more gains and back moot. From the standpoint of Ukraine, their finances are busted. They already made out um, articles basically saying this ability to pay pensions have come into question. They've been printing money just to keep the military funded. And all things been equal right now, their energy system is basically being decimated with Russia instantiating their gains as more and more reserves pour into the country. If Ukraine couldn't beat an expeditionary force, how is it going to beat the Russian military in and of itself when that's considered to be Russian territory? And if they can't win, and if they know they can't win, and if it doesn't necessarily seem like NATO is getting involved into the conflict, then what is Ukraine expected to do in this situation? And would a state that hates their opposition that much, would a state that is in that particular existential situation, would that state stoop to the level of using a dirty bomb? That's the question that people need to regard. I mean, keep in mind, all things been equal, Ukraine has been attacking the Gibraltar nuclear power plant, which is harebrained and extensively problematic in and of itself, considering that if indeed they were able to breach, let's say, the, 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 the facility itself, maybe they could have created some kind of nuclear disaster. It seems that that's what they were trying to do. Zelensky himself, Early on, mentioned that Ukraine should get a bomb and even made the point of saying there should be a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia. So for all these people that are poo-pooing this idea, I don't think you should quite poo-poo this idea like this. Also, I don't necessarily know what's going on behind the scenes in the conversations. Yes, the world leaders can come out and say one thing and behind the scenes be freaking out and maybe reaching out to Ukraine. Or if it's based on everything else, they could allow Ukraine to do what Ukraine does. And what would happen? In the same way that Gazprom Russia supposedly bombed their own pipeline on the same way they supposedly bombed their own facility where they were holding Azov battalion members because they hated Azov battalion members that much, even to the point of injuring potentially their own people. Or for that matter, even this idea of these guys and the way that they were talking about Russia was attacking themselves, meaning any and everything that comes up, Russia is apparently doing it to themselves. This is the West. They've gotten lazy. They don't even try to come up with a good explanation. Oh, yeah, Russia bombed their own pipeline. My point is, if each and everything that it is clear 
that either Ukraine or the United States, or for that matter, the Western powers are engaged in, they blame Russia on it, then if a dirty bomb goes off, why wouldn't they do the same thing for this? Do you honestly accept that they would come out and say, yeah, Ukraine did this, or Ukraine is thinking this after they've wet themselves that closely to Ukraine? That is a big problem that I think we need to reconcile. If indeed they are thinking of such, and if indeed they release such, and if indeed after they release such, the West will basically come on and blame Russia for it, then is Russia wrong in pointing out, hey, these guys are talking about a potential dirty bomb. You need to get your boy in line. Also, the existential framing of the United States doesn't necessarily help my point of view of this. If you remember, the United States screened their weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and then used that as a pretext to invade Iraq and end up killing a million Iraqis. On top of that, the Syria, Syria, chemical weapon strikes. Assad is just a butcher. He's a dictator. And he's just releasing chemical weapons in order to kill those very people. Now, Seymour Hersh made the point once before that the reason that Obama didn't necessarily go with that red line statement is because he knew he got reporting that chemical weapons were being transported through Turkey in order to give to the terrorists, in order to create a pretext, in order to get the West further involved into the conflict, or the United States in this case. What the terrorists understood, they were backed by us, unfortunately. What they understood was that there was no way for the U.S. to get involved further into that conflict without creating a pretext that allowed the U.S. to get further involved. Obama's red line statement gave that pretext breath in its lungs, and they were basically going for it. Instead, they said Assad did it and immediately changed some of the reporting to give this impression that a chemical weapons was being used by Assad as opposed to the potential terrorists in the region. And in that very specific situation, it wasn't even a chemical weapon um, based on the reporting came out, well, later reporting. I, I guess my point here is this. All things been equal. We have this situation where the U.S. has created a framework by which they would basically get involved into the country itself and escalate and expand this war. That pretext was if Russia uses nuclear weapons. Now, think of how weird this is, even as a pretext. All things be equal, like I said, an expeditionary force working with dumbass militias was able to take 20% of the territory. And the only reason they lost Kharkov is because the people were basically didn't have enough, let's say, power or force in order to maintain what they had or instantiate those gains while additionally making more gains. So if you are telling me that an expeditionary force is going to be escalated immediately to tactical nukes, I think you're insane. And not just think you're insane. I think you're saying it for reasons. And I have to believe that on some part, those reasons could be because there's an understanding of what Ukraine potentially wants to do. And you want to create a framework by which to get further involved in Ukraine if you do indeed believe that Ukraine is going to basically collapse in total. Meaning you may want to put a force on the west of Ukraine in order to balkanize that particular region, maintain power in that region. And you could be using this pretext of Russia's nuclear strike, tactical nukes, and all this other nonsense as a pretext to do it if your patsy nation, your proxy, Ukraine, basically initiates. I'm saying this can't be ignored. This is a massive, massive uh, problem. And whether, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. What I hope is going on behind the scenes is that after conversations with Austin or Wallace or the French minister, that all things been equal, they're telling them to cut it out while simultaneously talking behind the scenes or talking um, up front saying, there's no chance of this. We don't believe this. This is um, just Russia coming out with this or that. I tell you this, the fact that Shoigu went to talk to all of these various people doesn't come across as if they're just making it up. The fact that they're going to the Security Council doesn't come across as if they're making it up. One of two things is true. Either they do have intelligence that Ukraine can potentially do this 
And they've seen all of the other provocations and the framing that the Western governments have basically used that would allow them to make the belief that if indeed this happened, the West is going to blame us for something that their patsy did, just like they blame us for every other thing that their patsy did, or for that matter, the U.S. was involved in. Or it could be a situation where they are trying to preempt this, looking at the framing and not necessarily being comfortable with the framing. Like, again, anything that happens, they basically blame Russia. And so if they believe that there's a potential for something like this, then, yeah, they're screaming it to the hilt in order to make it clear this is them creating a potentially an escalation and a provocation. I don't necessarily know which one is true. I would love to be a fly in the, um, in the wall, on the wall, in order to hear the conversations that were taking place behind the scenes between Ben Wallace and Lord Alston, or for that matter, the conversations between Shoigu and the other defense ministers. I would love to be part of the conversation on phone calls that might have been made to Kiev after the fact. I am not. I can only see what is above and only from below. I would say this, though. All things been equal. Are you telling me that this is beyond the realm of possibility that a country that is basically losing a war, an existential war, will stoop to this level? Personally, I don't think it is. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps mix the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 845 or for that matter, 915. We have KJ today. But I want to bring in our guests. So Liz Truss, head of lettuce, apparently lasts longer than Liz Truss, <laughs> and she is on her way out. I think Elijah made the point of saying Truss wasn't trusted by her constituents, and that is a fair point to make, right? Truss comes in, pushes a mini-budget. That mini-budget drops the pound through the floor to almost parity with the dollar, and she fires Quartang, Chancellor, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and she was hoping that putting a knife in her Chancellor of the Exchequer would be enough to get her out of that particular situation. Well, not so much. Reports were coming from all over the place. Trust is on her way out. Trust, 17 um, weeks or trust till Christmas. And then it came out. Trust has days, not weeks. And all of a sudden, the announcement came out. Trust resigns. She says she was a fighter and fought for a week after saying she was a fighter and didn't necessarily have the faith of the nation, let alone her own party. To have a conversation about it, we're joined with the one and only Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik correspondent. Yeah, right here. Yeah, on Wyatt Reed is a Sputnik News analyst and producer. For, yeah, he's a Sputnik News correspondent. Wyatt, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? I'm good. How about yourself, Jamal? I am good. Better that you are with us. So apparently, Rishi Shunak, Sunak is going to be the new prime minister, or is the new prime minister at this point. Um, he comes out and makes the point of saying, right here, trust is earned, and I will earn yours. He said in front of Downing Street, um, and this is after he spoke to King Charles III. Give me your take on this. I mean, it just, it's an open-ended question. How do you view this? What's your take on this? We're, you're going to the UK, so you're going to be on the ground there. You're in France currently. 
Um, but you're close enough to get the news reports and you're close enough to get a feel for the events that are taking place. And I also want to bounce back to what's taking place on the ground in France. But first, let's go to the UK. What is your take on Sunak taking power? Well, that's right. Rishi Sunak has just officially become the new prime minister of the United Kingdom. He just wrapped up his first official address at number 10 Downing Street. And he said that now that he's taken the top job, it's fallen to him to fix what he called the mistakes made by Liz Truss. That's his extraordinarily unpopular predecessor who left office just days ago with a 10 percent approval rating. He's noted that our country is facing a profound economic crisis, but he says that, quote, the government I lead will not leave the next generation, your children and grandchildren, with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves. And this seems to be the first indication that his administration will be seeking to raise taxes while imposing greater austerity measures on the poorer populations. You know, within minutes of the news coming out that uh, Boris Johnson would not challenge him for this position and thus allow Sunak to become the prime minister, the hashtag Rishi out began to trend on social media. <laughs> and uh, Zara, you know, already, you know, there are hecklers out front of, of Downing Street that were set, that were screaming this phrase at him. And so uh, Zara Sultana, who's a labor MP, just issued an address saying that he's totally unfit to be prime minister. She said he shows the limitations of representation politics and that having black and brown people at the top does not mean that the lives of black and brown people in the UK will be better. In fact, they have gotten worse. And this is a point that was backed up by a video that came out of Sunak in August. He was speaking to his wealthy supporters in private. And he said, quote, we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labor Party and shoved all that funding into deprived urban areas that needed to be undone. undone and I started work on undoing that. Um, so wow. that gives you kind of a sense of where he's coming from. He is of Indian descent. Uh, his parents are from Africa, but, uh, you know, of Punjabi descent. He, uh, he is a Hindu and establishment media has heralded him as the first prime minister of color in the UK, but really, he's someone whose existence is defined by his wealth. I think right. more so. Because well, he has seven hundred million dollars or something. Yeah, seven thirty. Yeah, seven thirty. This is some obscene amount of money pounds. that he has. Yeah, right. And that's you know that over eight hundred million dollars, and that's just what we know about. You know, it could be higher. Uh, that's between him and his wife, and his upper class background goes all the way back to his education at uh, Winchester College, which is an elite boarding school that costs over $50,000 a year, continued with his university education at Oxford. His career really began in earnest in the early 2000s with a three-year stint at Goldman Sachs, which is this notorious American multinational investment bank that's been described as the most hated bank in the world. <laughs> and that particular employment was followed up with work for two separate hedge funds before he started his political career. Um, and he's kind of tried to brush all these criticisms aside by saying that, you know, he's fortunate to be in his current position, but he wasn't, quote, born like this. He said, I think in our country, we judge people not by their bank account. We judge them by their character and their actions. Um, and, you know, but what, what his actions actually say, I don't think is, is much better. And he's really coming off uh, a number of kind of scandalous uh, occurrences in April. It came out that uh, his wife, 
uh, Ashraf Murthy uh, was classified as a non-domiciled UK resident, which means that she was able to avoid UK taxes on her international earnings by just paying an annual fee of thirty thousand uh-huh. pounds. And if she hadn't done that, she would have had to pay over twenty million pounds of UK taxes. Um, and so finally, after you know the public discovered this, they basically said, oh, "Okay, okay, okay. Well, we'll pay taxes after all." Um, doesn't really speak terribly highly of their character. I think it it sort of uh, uh, gives you a sense of really kind of where his priorities are and likely where they are going to be in his new role at Downing Street going forward. Why? You said something. One second. You said something in that commentary that he basically made the point of saying the money going to urban areas. So the expectation is he's going to cut services, right? I mean, everything that I've read up to this point, even in his statement, it sounds as if what they're going to do is um, we're not going to leave the debt on our people's back. Okay, so what does that mean? Does it mean austerity that these guys are going to put into place? I mean, what is the expectation that he's going to do in that office that was different from trust? Well, it's hard to say what he'll do that's different. He certainly had a hand in the economic policies that were a big part of why she was unpopular. I mean, uh, it's well, it's also hard to overstate just how intellectually lacking Liz Truss was. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Uh, she's widely seen as just really not fit for the top job. A lot of people said that Boris Johnson kind of put her in this position so that he would have a way of coming back into power after people realized kind of how dumb she was. Um, and that approval rating kind of speaks for itself. Uh, she's really tanked conservatives' approval rating. There's something like uh, in the 20s, you know, currently. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly uh, Sunak will be able to do to bring that popularity back up. Obviously, the UK is facing an incredible economic crisis right now, hunger at levels that uh, many communities have never seen before. You see all types of reports coming out about uh, food banks, just lines out the door. Um, people who have never had to go and use these services are now, you know, you can see interviews with people just breaking down, crying, um, saying that they never thought that they would be in this position. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult position to be in for anyone. And, you know, the indication so far is that, you know, just judging from the rhetoric that he's been pushing uh, is that a lot of these policies are likely to make things even worse for working Brits. Wyatt, thanks for joining us. It's Malik here. A question about the, the Sunak's, his wealth. Um, it's not as if Brits aren't used to being ruled by elites. Um, Boris Johnson was about as rich as they come. Well, elite as they come, but they're considering Sunak, he's super rich. Super rich, and you you Richard made the point. Romney. Yes, yes, his wife. I think she's an Indian tech heiress or something. But what do you make of mm-hmm. the debate that's going on now? Because currently, what's happening? It seems as if there's a debate on whether or not he's too rich to be prime minister. On one hand, you have people saying that indeed, you know, he's out of touch, he's out of step with regular people. But those who actually back him says that it's it's his background as chancellor. Um, and with his wealth and everything, that actually makes him a good candidate to kind of guide the nation through these, like, tumultuous times. What do you make or what are you hearing? What do you make of this debate between is he too rich or he's um, okay um, as far as what the people are saying on the ground? Or, 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 or let, let me clarify that. How, is his, how will his wealth do you um, position? How, do, how will his wealth factor into the debate? 
Well, it's impossible to avoid. You can find headlines in UK media talking about he's the first prime minister to be wealthier than the royal family. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and, and to that it's, point, it's, Queen, it's, Queen Elizabeth, 370 million pounds. Sunak, 730 million pounds. Yeah, so you're right. Right. And I mean, it's impossible to avoid this conversation. And he has tried, you know, to basically portray his detractors as being jealous um, and as, as basically using this to, this wealth, um, which, you know, to his credit, he did not inherit most of. Um, but they try to use this to, to be like, well, obviously, I know how to manage money. Um, I If I didn't know how to manage money, how would I have gotten all this wealth? But at the same time, I think you see with that tax scandal, you, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of a lot of times, and Sunak isn't really an exception, a lot of people get to this incredible level of wealth specifically by cheating the tax man, cheating the public out of the money that um, they deserve for having, you know, them, they themselves participated in and paid taxes in and helped create a society which allowed someone like Sunak to thrive and to flourish. So how that will play out specifically, uh, it's obviously too soon to say, but it, there is kind of a sense that he's on the back foot here, that he has been um, forced to answer questions for this. And, you know, he wasn't, this isn't the first time that he's run for prime minister. Um, questions like these, I think, were pretty important in terms of why he ended up losing the leadership contest to Liz Trust the last go round. Um, and, you know, to be fair, there is certainly an element of racism among the British establishment, especially the Conservative Party that, um, you know, and I think there's a parallel that's been drawn between Barack Obama here and that, you know, there there was a, a segment of the establishment that did not want to necessarily have someone who wasn't white uh, running the country. Um, but in that same sense, I mean, you know, there there is a common theme because while his arrival at, at Downing Street is being heralded as a, a victory for all Indians, like Obama's presidency was treated as a victory for all black people, uh, when you go back into his life, it really seems to have been spent trying more to gain access to this elite and largely white club of the ruling class more than trying to uplift the community that he came from. Well, that's the interesting part. When I was there... Speaking to some of the people who were not white, basically British um, in a traditional sense. Uh, I'll just say not white because that sounds weird. Basically, they were making the point of saying they didn't believe that a person of color was ever going to take that spot. Um, And from their standpoint, their thinking was, look, all things been equal. We've been welcome to the country. We're in this country. But oftentimes it is ruled by Brits. Um, and somebody who's like us or of our particular descent is not going to be in a situation in order to get it. So they just discounted Sunak, in which case Liz Trust won it. Um, has there been any conversation around his race? Because, like, like, to your point, if you have $700 million in the bank, you are not living the experience of a person who's coming into that country as an immigrant or indigenous. And so, meaning, whereas Obama could say, you know, I grew up in these neighborhoods, I grew up relatively poor, I was able to get my political thing, but just kind of crawl... Sudak is in a different position for this. How have how has that affected the conversation around his premiership? Well, there was a a big uh, story in the recent days where uh, you know a, a caller on the British talk show called "Leading Britain's Conversation" said that uh, Rishi Sunak isn't even British, 
um, that you know this he, he compared him to to Al Qaeda or something. But what? when it comes down to his actual policies, I mean, he's uh, been in lockstep with uh, people like Priti Patel when she had this um, so-called Rwanda deportation plan. They they wanted to basically send back all the uh, asylum seekers coming from Rwanda. Um, and this is, uh, something that a big part of the, uh, the, the conservative coalition is, is behind. And, you know, I think in many ways he will likely face pressure to, to demonstrate his loyalty to, you know, the quote unquote real Britons by effectively clamping down harder. This is certainly a dynamic you can see, um, you know, when you look back into the history of, of the U.S. as well, you see sort of groups that were once not considered white kind of got to be considered white by trotting down on people that were less white. You know, when you look at the Irish, for example, in cities like Boston, New York, becoming, you know, police. You look in, in countries like Israel, when you talk about the, the Mizrahim or the Sephardic Jews, uh, oftentimes, some of the worst racism that Palestinians experience comes from these people who uh, see that they they have to uh, enact even more brutal racism on the uh, perceived lower populations in order to demonstrate their loyalty to the kind of racialized caste system. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I hope to be proven wrong, but I certainly uh, think that this is kind of on the table, um, not something that he has sworn off by any means. And, um, you know, going forward, I, I would I would suggest that, you know, if he does want to legitimize himself in the eyes of some of the people like that caller, that this is, is an option that will likely be on the table. Hey, Wyatt, another question for you. What let's just play this out and assume that past is prologue. Um, and Sunak doesn't last longer than the lettuce. What what happens? I mean, what, does this mean that Boris Johnson enters the fold? If he doesn't, if Sunak doesn't last this long, what happens in the next round if Sunak doesn't last? Well, hopefully they'll give the job to the lettuce. I think <laughs> at this point that would be probably the, the lettuce best. deserves it at that point. That lettuce is hard. <laughs> that, that lettuce is a fighter. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, it's kind of hard to say. I, I would guess, I would guess really Boris Johnson would be basically the last man standing at that point. Can you imagine uh, him getting the, his job the back? The Labor Party, obviously, after all that, yeah. Um, I mean, I would guess that the Labor Party, they, I mean, they've been using this uh, to call for new general elections. Um, that's not something, I guess, that uh, is in the works for the conservative party at the point. At this point, I think... They know that if they did, they would get absolutely trounced. Um, just, you know, you can see 20 point plus differentials in some of these opinion polls that are coming out recently. Um, so that doesn't seem to be something that they want to uh, call for anytime soon. Uh, you know, I, I can't say exactly for sure what would happen. My sense is that uh, Sunak will last a little bit longer than Liz Truss just because he's he's a competent politician, right? Yeah. He's more polished by far, he's he's going to be able to kind of hold the conservative ship together, I think, uh, at the very least, whereas Liz Truss was just kind of constantly bumbling around, tripping over her, her own feet, you know, tripping over her words, saying all types of absurd things and, you know, just 
really kind of embarrassing the UK on the international stage. Um, Sunak's not going to do all that, uh, you know. And, and in that way, in, in that sense, uh, like Obama, to me personally, it makes him more dangerous in many ways because he is competent, he is capable of carrying out these, you know, extreme neoliberal policies, these hollowing out of the middle class and passing it off to people, um, especially uh, immigrants, uh, especially sort of more vulnerable populations as somehow being in their best interest. So, you know, it's obviously too soon to say exactly what would happen if he does get forced to resign in the coming weeks, but uh, I don't expect it will be quite as easy to push him out as it was Liz Truss. Let me ask you this, labor. Let's get into labor for a moment. Um, What is the situation with labor in relation to the British government. And what I'm asking, what I mean by that is, all things been equal, there was Jeremy Corbyn. You had a huge amount of infighting between Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer, even though it was kind of muted, it was behind the scenes, it was very clear that it was happening during the Brexit vote. They went further in trying to get rid of Corbyn, meaning, you know, putting a knife in the guy, um, in the back of the guy, wasn't enough. They went with anti-Semitism claims. They basically tried to push Jeremy Corbyn out of the party for all intents and purposes. So, I would imagine there's a huge amount of consternation among the lefties that were in that party that is perfectly aware of what they were doing. Does Keir Starmer have enough support in order to take power? Meaning, is the fall of the Tory government enough for Labour to basically take power without necessarily doing anything in order to justify taking it, short of the Tory party imploding? My personal take is that, yes, it is. Uh, Keir Starmer isn't... Uh considered that that popular on his own merits, but just in terms of being kind of the the only alternative, the only viable alternative in the eyes of the public, uh, that makes him all the more appealing. Now, uh, we know that uh, the next general elections have to be, uh, have to occur at, by 2024 well, like at the years. latest. Yeah. Right. So there's quite a bit of time between now and then. Well, or, um, wait, is you know, if the last two years were any indication, well, I mean, how much how much has changed between 2020 and now? Well, I right? guess what, it's, what I'm asking is an entirely is, different world. I guess what I'm asking is, is there going to be a huge amount of pressure? Whoever takes back, well, Sunak, right? Is there going to be pressure on him? Because this is what, the sixth Tory or something? And you had Boris Johnson collapse. You had Liz um, Cameron's government collapse, Theresa May's government, meaning all of these governments basically collapse under Tories. You had, um, after Boris Johnson, you get Sunak, I'm sorry, Truss, and then you get Sunak. At this point, there needs to be a general election. Is there a huge amount of talk about being putting pressure on the government in order to go through that general election? Well, I'm not sure how much they can necessarily do just in terms of the, the British law. If the conservatives don't want to go to elections, they there's really, you know, you I guess if you had massive protests in the streets calling for it. But the reality is that the, the British left, uh, a lot of them are really not organizing through the Labor Party anymore. They're doing actual strike actions. Uh, you have these ongoing rail strikes that have been taking place since June, the biggest rail strikes in decades uh, that have been shutting down uh, transportation all throughout the country. Um, you have just kind of a new generation of these more active, more hard left uh, activists and organizers who are totally disillusioned with the Labor Party at this point, having seen the purging of not just Jeremy Corbyn, but really the entire left part of the party um, on these extremely dubious anti-Semitism allegations that were totally trumped up. I saw a recent report that said 
23% of the anti-Semitism complaints in the party came from one specific person. Um, none of this was, was reported in the news at the time. It was all more or less regurgitated verbatim as though it was truth. Um, and, you know, obviously there was never any smoking gun to prove any of this. It was, it was all more or less hearsay that uh, many now say was just totally invented. But uh, in going through that purge, you know, uh, a lot of people really lost faith in the Labor Party or were simply forced out of the Labor Party. Um, and so there is now just this huge section of the British left that is uh, putting their uh, their efforts and their energy into real, real, not Labor Party actions, but labor organizing actions. So that means they are going out organizing with unions um, instead of with this Labor Party that they, I think, with good reason, view as being totally co-opted by the establishment at this point. Considering all the political turmoil, the economic stability there, how can the conservative party continue to push for war with Russia? Well, it's not just the conservative party. This is the Labor Party, too. You know, if they had if they had been unsuccessful in urging Corbyn and and his compatriots, or really if I think the only way that that would have happened was if, if Corbyn had purged them first, had realized kind of the threat he was up against and said, you know what, if I'm not going to wait for you guys to do this to me. I'm going to do it to you now. Um, then this could have potentially been avoided. But now it's, uh, you know, Keir Starmer has been in lockstep with uh, all of this anti-Russia uh, rhetoric with pushing over and over for, you know, more aid to, to the Ukraine. Uh, Rishi, Sunak, uh, Rishi Sunak as well has been uh, extremely uh, active in terms of uh, pushing the, the United Kingdom to be, take an active role in the hostilities with Russia. And we know, you know, Boris Johnson uh, was actively sabotaging efforts at peace talks between uh, Zelensky and Putin in April. Uh, there was a quote that came out from Ukrainian media, not from Russian media, that said that uh, Johnson said something to the effect that um, the Ukrainian, you know, you, you meaning Ukrainians, may be ready to negotiate, but we, the British, are not. And so they basically uh, sabotaged any efforts at peace. Um, the Brits have been uh, really, I think, second only to the United States in terms of championing the quote unquote Ukrainian cause. In reality, championing anti-Russian rhetoric and anti-Russian military action. Um, a lot of this is taking place through the MI6. So I don't think we'll find out for many years the exact role that they played in all of this. Um, but certainly, uh, especially compared to the rest of the European Union, uh, the Brits, the Brits have been playing a leading role in all of this, and that goes across the board. And I think that's a big part of the reason why somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, who was a peace candidate who wanted to end UK involvement in uh, wars, in foreign wars, and who, um, you know, Mike Pompeo was uh, recorded uh, at a a dinner with many influential. Um, Zionist backers saying that he would, quote, push back against Corbyn if he were to be elected. Um, he said if Corbyn manages to run the gauntlet and get elected, he said it was possible. You should know we won't wait for him to do those things to make 
quote unquote, to make life difficult for Jews in the UK. We won't wait on him to do those things to begin to push back. We will do our level best. It's too risky and too important and too hard once it's already happened. Uh, so that was more or less a, an open admission. Uh, this was in a private event, obviously, and it only surfaced because presumably one of the workers recorded it. Um, but, uh, you know, there was this widespread sense among the quote unquote deep state, the intelligence apparatuses uh, across the Atlantic, that Corbyn was a serious threat to their ability to wage war unilaterally um, and without any published pushback. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why you saw this massive uh, coordinated conspiracy to keep him out of the prime ministership. Uh, it was a successful one. And now, as a result, all of those anti-war tendencies have been completely marginalized within the Labour Party. So even if Keir Starmer were to become prime minister, uh, I wouldn't expect uh, things around, you know, the situation around Ukraine aid or anti-Russian hostilities to change much in Britain, just as I don't expect things to change, um, you know, having a Democrat in office in power in the United States. If anything, it's almost, you know, for, for a while up until last night when uh, I think 30 uh, Democratic lawmakers finally penned some letter asking Biden to engage in diplomacy right. with Russia. But prior to that, it was basically a Republican tendency. They more or less ceded the anti-war uh, front Action to of the Republicans. Left. Yeah, and it was only weird. people like Kevin McCarthy saying that Why? they would We're push back on it. this. So. But keep in mind, Tony Blair was the one that took us Who's to war. Who's knows? Yeah. So, but Wide Reed, the voice you guys are listening to, he's a Sputnik News correspondent. He's on the ground. He's in France, but he's on the way to London. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with, in the right corner, Malik Abdul. Coming to you live out of our station from D.C., you guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, so Wyatt is in France. He's on his way to the U.K., so that should be an interesting trip when he gets there. Yep. And we're going to try to pull him in tomorrow to get, I guess, the feel for what's taking place on the ground. Going to need an update. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's, I think it's fascinating. I mean, the people were very clear on the ground. Black person can't be prime minister or person of color. Mm -hmm. And they were very clear. And they were looking at it as, look, they're white Brits. And they're ones who are not white. And from the standpoint of the people who take power, oftentimes those people who are people not of people of color. So this is, you know, it's weird, though, because it's not it's not like he's had. They often say that Obama didn't have the African experience in the country because his mom was white and dad was black, that type of stuff. And that basically he grew up in Hawaii and all this stuff. Well, this is even more that. Mm -hmm. I mean, their thing was Obama wasn't a descendant of slavery, so it's somewhat different as opposed right. to having a black he, person. He didn't have the typical black American experience. experience. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, Sunak has $700 million in a bank. $700 million. So is that really indicative and representative of the people of color in the UK? That's the question. Meaning his argument about, oh, well, I, you know, I am whatever. All things being equal, he's fantastically wealthy. His experience is going to be different. And it's kind of like the Nancy Pelosi thing. 
is Nancy Pelosi really in tune with the American public? Or is Joe Biden really in tune with the American public hitting 80 years old, especially if you have a younger population? Can someone that wealthy be um, have populist leanings? Yes. Well, Donald Trump. Yeah, but I'm talking about real populist leanings. Like, you get in and you're actually doing populist stuff. Build a wall is one thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can call it right-wing populism. Um, so fair enough. I guess my thing is, though, that whether it's populist or not, is there a way for somebody either that rich or that old to get and still be have their finger on the pulse of I the... Think, I, think, I think we can use Donald Trump as an example of that. Yeah. His rhetoric... Could, Mitt Romney, Donald Trump. Mitt Romney was the elitist, oh, yes. the out-of-touch. Oh, yes. Donald Trump. Yeah. As well, the guy flew around on it with a, a plane with his name <laughs> on it. I don't know how much elite 1% can yeah. you get. Blue-collar billionaire, man. Yeah. yeah. But he, he had that appeal. You know, even if it were just in rhetoric alone, yeah. he had the appeal. And if he used it appropriately, he would have been able to move his people oh, along. Oh, man. I still say that. If Trump didn't have any allegiances when he got in office, he could have did whatever he wanted. And he decided to go hard right. All right, let's do this. Let's get in the headlines. In the news. Breaking. Uh, a little bit less so now. Rishi Shunak has officially become UK Prime Minister after King Charles III asked him to form a new government during their Tuesday meeting. Sunak emerged as the sole contender in the Tory leadership race on Monday after excuse me, his rivals Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson pulled out. The country's third prime minister in a year. Third in a year. Talking about shambolic. Was announced shortly after Sir Graham Brady the chair of the 1922 Committee of Backbench Tories. During the Monday public address, Sunak pledged, quote, to bring our party and our country together because that is the only way we will overcome the challenges we face, unquote. Earlier on Tuesday, King Charles III accepted the resignation of Liz Truss, who only lasted 44 days as prime minister. And as we keep mentioning, the lettuce that they put up there lasted longer than Liz Truss. If Sunak doesn't work, I agree with Wyatt. Give the lettuce the job. I always say the ham sandwich can do a better job than Joe Biden. Well, give the ham cham- give the ham sandwich a try. In this case, give the lettuce a try. He looks pretty dignified. I'm pretty sure he can do a great job. He can do better, hell of a lot better than what Liz Truss was doing. Let's keep going. In domestic news, on Monday, 30 Democratic lawmakers from the House of Representatives led by Premier Pramil Jayapal, chairwoman for the Congressional Progressive Caucus, wrote to President Joe Biden urging him to alter his Ukraine strategy and hold direct negotiations with Russia, quote, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire, unquote. The group of progressive House Democrats who urged President Joe Biden on Monday to make fundamental changes to U.S. strategy regarding the security crisis in Ukraine by seeking direct negotiations with Russia made a U-turn within hours, within hours of sending their letters to the POTUS. Under a wave of pressure from other Democrats, the group, led by Progressive Caucus woman Premier Jayapal, released a statement confirming their support for the president's strategy. Quote, let me be clear. We are united as Democrats in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for democracy and freedom. Unquote. Jayapal announced, adding that, quote, nothing in the letter advocates change in that support. Unquote. The statement went on to say that although diplomacy is, quote, an important tool that could save lives, it's just one tool. Really? Really? And this is why people don't like you. This is why members of your own party, the members or people who call themselves lefties, dislike you. How weak is it? After eight months, you finally come out and say, okay, maybe we need to come up with a new strategy because it seems like we're losing monstrously in Ukraine and we're getting hit dramatically on the home front, not to mention our allies. And within hours, within hours, you bend the knee? 
Oh, that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. You're so weak. You're so progressively weak. That's why your own party dislikes you. That's why. Meaning, and I don't mean your own party. I mean, people on the ground dislike you because one issue after the next, whether it's the $15 now minimum wage, whether it's the student loan stuff and basically giving a pass on that stuff, whether it's giving pass on the marijuana stuff, or whether it's the foreign intervention, the geopolitical policy that is basically adversely affecting your people, the people who you yourself are supposed to be out there supporting. They're the ones that are getting hit the most by all of this nonsense. And when you finally take a weak, tepid position on it, within hours, you fold. Oh, you're embarrassing. Let's keep going. Democrats are at risk of losing their legislative majority in Congress as Republicans challenge for control of both the House and Senate in midterm elections two weeks today on November 8th. Although the upper chamber fight could come down to the wire, all 435 seats in the House of Representatives would be contested alongside of 35 Senate seats to determine which party would lead the legislative process through the second half of the U.S. President Joe Biden's term. The elections come amid issues such as historic inflation, the conflict in Ukraine, and the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to return abortion regulation to states, all of which are expected to play a role in the outcome of the midterms. It's the economy stupid. I'll say it again. It's the economy stupid. A somewhat dazed U.S. President Joe Biden, 79, appeared to lose his way to the White House following a tree planting event on the South Lawn on Monday. Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden planted a ceremonial elm tree in the afternoon in honor of Dale um, Haney, the superintendent of the White House grounds, who earlier this month celebrated 50 years on the job. Footage showed that as the ceremony ended, Biden started walking in one direction, but suddenly stopped and seemingly confused at security team. Where do we go? Where do we go, bro? Where do we go? I don't know where to go. I'm lost. I'm Joe Biden. I'm the president. I've just been here for two years, but I'm lost. As the session, as the staff ushered him onto the right course back to the White House, the Democratic president is heard saying he wanted to go in the other direction. That's so sad, man. Man, that is so sad. Joe Biden, help your husband. Help your husband. If you love your husband, help him. The idea that, can you imagine Obama getting lost on the White House lawn? Anybody else. Anybody else getting lost in the White House lawn? God, that's so embarrassing. The U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, called the test scores a, quote, wake-up call, unquote, after test results from the National Assessment of Education Progress showed historical decline in math and reading scores for fourth graders and eighth graders, which Cardona has called, quote, appalling and unacceptable, unquote. The results in today's national report, or, quote, the results in today's national report card are appalling and unacceptable, Cardona told reporters, quote, this is a moment of truth for education. How we respond to this will determine not only our recovery, but our nation's standing in the world, unquote. Recent results from the National Assessment of Educational Progress exams, or the nation's report card, show a steep decline in math and reading scores among fourth graders and eighth graders. Peggy Carr, who is the National Center for Education Statistics Commissioner, said that math results were historic and the largest decline in mathematics the center has observed in the entire history of this assessment. Well, COVID, right? We had two years of lockdowns. Those kids were basically at home. It was a different situation. Um, the Biden administration on Monday urged U.S. Congress to pass a ban on so-called assault weapons as soon as possible after another deadly shooting occurred in schools in St. Louis, Missouri. Quote, every day that the Senate fails to send an assault weapons ban to the president's desk or waits to take another action is a day too late for families and communities impacted by gun violence. Unquote. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters on Monday. St. Louis Police Chief Lieutenant Colonel Michael Sack said on Monday that three individuals have been killed in the incident, including the gunman. 
In a Monday Monday press conference, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced three new federal cases against 13 individuals, 12 of whom are accused of being Chinese government agents. Garland's appeared Appearance was notable as he was accompanied by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson. Quote, over the past week, the Justice Department has taken action or several actions to disrupt criminal activity by individuals working on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China. Unquote, Garland said, look, I will believe this when I see this in court. They've said this too often and too many times. Let's see it when it goes to court. Iranian Armed Forces Chief of Staff Mohammed Bagheri has told Brussels what it can do with any assets of his that it happens to find after having his name added to the bloc's latest sanctions package. Quote, I have a humanitarian proposal for the European Union. For, from today, I give them the power of attorney in implementing the sanctions they've prepared, allowing them to identify and confiscate all of the properties and assets belonging to Major General Mohammed Hossein Bagheri and the banks around the world and use them to buy coal for Europe's citizens who face a tougher winter ahead. Unquote. The commander quipped in a statement put out late on Sunday. But Gary said he, quote, understands, unquote, why the U.S. and European Union have sanctioned him. Quote, given the sense the victory of the Islamic Revolution, the armed forces of the Islamic Republic were included in the various sanctions lists, but turned this threat into an opportunity. Unquote. I love that. Hey, if you're going to take my assets, you do that. And you use it for humanitarian reasons. You give your people heat in the winter since you're going to freeze to death as a direct result of your geo policy. Great burn. Let's keep going. French President Emmanuel Macron has earned Washington to start negotiations to stop the Ukrainian crisis. Quote, we need the United States to sit down at the negotiating table to advance the peace process in Ukraine. Unquote. Macron said, speaking to reporters after his visit to the Vatican, pointing to the relationship of trust between Pope Francis and Biden, who is a Catholic, Macron suggested that Pope Francis can, quote, Influence him so that the United States resumes its involvement in resolving the crisis in Haiti and Ukraine, unquote. He added in Haiti to that. Um, Good luck with that. Good luck with that. This is not about religious issues. This is about geopolicy. And all things being equal, the United States wants to remain hegemon. And if it loses this conflict in Ukraine, there's going to be questions around whether it and the West still has the power to influence events on the ground according to their will. Macron, I understand why basically he loses governing majority he sees the crisis that is taking place in europe he wants this to come to an end on some level wars are far harder to get out of though if you want to get out of a war the fastest way to do it is to lose it french lawmakers on monday failed to pass two motions of no confidence in the government's lodge by the leftist and right parties after the prime minister forced a controversial bill through parliament yale braun pivot yeah pivot the president of the lower house of the National Assembly said the motion filed by the leftist coalition Noops won 239 out of the 289 votes, while that of the far-right national rally won 90. In a rare move, lawmakers from Le Pen's or Marie Le Pen's party national rally backed the rival motion despite her initial refusal to endorse. Moscow considers it unacceptable um, the fact that the United States has not issued visas for the Russian delegation to the IAEA International Ministerial Conference on Nuclear Energy in the 21st Century, Russia uh, Foreign Ministry spokesman Maria Zakalva said. The conference will be held in Washington from October 26th to 28th. The Russian delegation comprising representatives of State uh, Corporation, Rostam, and Technical Watchdog, Roskodenovizar, 
plan to take part in it. I did not nail that at all. Rastanazor. Yeah, something that, yeah, that name, that, <laughs> wow. Okay, let's keep going. Quote, the United States never issued visas to the Russian delegation despite the fact that the re relevant applications were submitted by them in advance in accordance with the established procedure. Thus, Russian participation in the important international event under the auspices of the IAEA was blocked in an absolutely unacceptable way and without any reason, unquote, Zakalva said in a statement. Let's go to tech news. With Elon Musk reportedly poised to finalize his deal and purchase Twitter for $44 billion before the expiration of the court's deadline on October 28th, the social media company is under increasing pressure, Axios reported, citing Twitter insiders. The drawing out and dramatic takeover saga has taken its toll, making it tough to carry on with business as usual, according to insiders cited by the outlet. Discussing long-term deals with clients and vendors has become particularly challenging amid the, quote, uncertainty, um, Twitter uh, employees said, adding, quote, People are just exhausted. It can be conflicting because as a shareholder, you're happy, but as an employee, there are lots of uncertainty, unquote. I can imagine that to be true, I suppose. This day in history in 1854, the infamous charge of the Light Brigade during the Battle of Balakaba in the Crimean War results in over 100 killed. In 1962, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Adelaide Stevenson, demands USSR U.N. Representative Valerian Zorin answer regarding Cuban missile bases, saying, quote, I am prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, unquote. I remember that. I remember that. In 1971, United Nations votes to expel Chinese nationalists, rule Taiwan, and admit the Communist Party, Party of Communist People's Republic of China. And in 2017, Chinese Premier Xi Jinping unveils his new ruling council and the Great Hall of the People. None of the five are young, except um, enough to succeed him. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. All right. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with the one and only Scott Ritter. Always love talking to Scott Ritter. He's always very strong in whatever he says. Um, and I got to be honest, for the majority of this, he's been right. So always enjoy talking to people who tend to be right. So you guys are listening on The Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. <laughs> Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live on our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 521-1320. We'll take your calls at 8.45 or this morning at 9.15. Definitely don't be shy. But I want to bring in our guests. We have the one and only Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is a former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. Scott, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I am doing great. Better that you are with us. And you seem to be a great person to have a conversation about the dirty bomb issue. Um, in my monologue this morning, I kind of made the point that Western leaders are basically, oh, there's no likelihood of this. There's no chance of this. And I was trying to make the point that from a Ukrainian framing where this war is existential, meaning if this war keeps going on, it is unclear what the Ukrainian state is going to look like going forward. If the U.S. was in this position or if any other nation with a nuclear bomb was in this position, they may be inclined to put nukes on the table as a way of maintaining the integrity of their nation. Is this the situation that Ukraine finds itself in? Meaning, are there, is there legs, from your point of view, to this dirty bomb story that Russia is putting out saying, look, these guys are at the end stage of this, 
and went out to all of these various leaders around the globe, Britain, United States, I believe France, Turkey, or Turkey. What's the reality of this? What's your take on this? There's two aspects to this. First of all, let me just say that the Russian Minister of Defense and the general, the chief of the general staff of the Russian Armed Forces uh, are not punk-ass kids. What I mean by that is they don't make prank calls. When they pick up a phone and they call a counterpart in the United States, United Kingdom, France, Turkey, it's because it's life and death serious. It's not a joke. They don't play propaganda games. They leave that for the public affairs officers. They leave that for the spokespersons. But when people of this caliber working for the Russian Federation pick up the phone, it's because there's something going on. And don't just ask me. Ask the United States, who has maintained a hotline with these people for many, many years, recently to deconflict over Syria. Ask anybody who's ever picked up a phone call from the Russians regarding Syria that wasn't a life and death issue and needed immediate clarification or else American airplanes were going to get shot down. So anybody who thinks that Russia's out there playing games needs to back down a little bit. It, it irritates me because we're talking about a situation that could rapidly escalate out of control. Now we come to the Ukrainian issue. This is a life and death issue for Ukraine. Um, but Ukraine needs to understand that the world's not ready, willing to go down with them. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say I feel sorry for the Ukrainian regime because it's a step on Bandera, neo-Nazi worshiping thug regime that deserves to be eradicated from the face of the earth. I feel sorry for the Ukrainian people, especially those who bought into the vision of an independent Ukraine modeled on uh, what existed in 1991. Um, those people have been betrayed. They've been betrayed by their own government. They've been betrayed by Europe, the United States, NATO. Um, and now they're paying the price. The price is the loss of their nation. Ukraine has lost this war. I'll just say that one more time just to make it clear. Ukraine has lost this war. They threw everything they had into a, one of the dumbest offenses ever undertaken in military history, a purely political show to gain empty terrain at the sacrifice of everything they had invested over the summer. The Russians have consolidated their defenses. They're slaughtering the Ukrainians doctrinally now. Every time the Ukrainians come in, the Russians just take them apart, and Russia's just pounding them to death while they're building up their military force. And Ukrainian leadership is looking around saying, we ain't got nothing left. And when they turn to the United States, the United States is saying, we ain't got nothing to give you. And Europe's saying, we ain't got nothing to give you. We can throw some euros at you. you know. But when Ukraine's asking for 8 billion euros a month and they're getting 1.5, that's a problem. Um, so the Ukrainian leadership is literally in panic mode because they know what's about to happen. A total collapse of their military on the front, um, and they've got nothing to plug the lines. The total collapse of their society as the energy grid is shut down and winter is coming. And a similar thing is happening in Europe, which is testing the resolve of Europeans willing to reach deep and continue to help. Uh, you just had 30 Democrats defect. Biden's policy of we will support Ukraine until the end. The 30 Democrats took a look at the polls and said, uh, we're not willing to die politically for this cause. Uh, Biden needs to turn it around, a diplomatic outcome, or we're going to get slaughtered at the polls because the American people aren't buying this anymore. So yes, this is an existential issue for Ukraine, where desperate 
desperate measures can be considered. Now, let's go to a dirty bomb. Do I believe that the Russians have intelligence information about the Ukrainians preparing a dirty bomb? Yes, 100%. I believe Russia has that. Why do I believe that? Because in my entire career as an intelligence officer, I've received similar reports over and over and over again. Anybody in the intelligence business knows that that's always there. There's always talk. And one of the reasons is because dirty bombs aren't that hard to make. I can go right now in Del Mar, New York, and I can go hijack a truck. And I know what truck I'm looking for. And I know in that truck is a, a, a radioactive a device that's used to test the integrity of pipelines. It's terribly radioactive. I know where to get it. And there's other people like me that know where to get it. There's no security on it. I go in, pop the driver, take the thing. I now have something that I attach an explosive device to, and I have a dirty bomb that can contaminate all of downtown Delmar. It ain't hard to do. And there's terrorists out there that know this. Law enforcement's looking for it. It's, it's, this is just the state of play. So, yes, there's intelligence information going back and forth and all over about this. But I've also investigated the only dirty bomb ever produced by a nation state and tested. And that was the dirty bomb produced by Iraq in 1987. They built four of them. Two of them they blew up, actually dropping on the ground. They tested it. They don't work. What they found is you're dropping a one-ton a high-explosive device that at that time was uh, had a core of zirconium-95, irradiated zirconium. Um, and the idea was to blow it up and scatter it. But the level of radiation that was lethal was only lethal within 10 meters of the crater. It's a one-ton bomb. If you're 10 meters from the crater, radiation ain't what's killing you. The high explosive is. Dirty bombs don't work. Israel knows this because they were scared to death of this. From 2010 to 2014, Israel carried out 20 live detonations of various configures of dirt, configurations of dirty bombs. And what they found is they don't work. They don't accomplish what people think they're going to accomplish. They don't contaminate what people think they're going to contaminate. It's purely a psychological weapon. Um, and the Ukrainians, I know they're desperate. There has to be somebody in the Ukrainian chain of command who understands this isn't going to go the way you think it's going to go. This isn't going to be the false flag you think it's going to be. Because the moment you detonate it, A, it's not going to be the death and destruction you think it's going to be. What it's going to be is a poof, radiation in the air. Everybody's going to detect that radiation. And then people like me get a hold of the data. And we go through it. And we look at the various you know, radionuclei, and we say, hey, what's the origin of that? We go into the database because every nuclear reactor in the world that produces radioactive material has a unique signature. And we will say that came from this reactor. Not only that, I'll tell you the days that it was, that, that the radiation took place, because again, it's, it's not something that's replicated. There's a unique signature. And we will immediately say, this is where it came from, who had possession of it. And we'll trace it back to the Ukrainians within 24 hours. But, but Scott, the issue isn't so much the impact of it, even though, yeah, that's one of the biggest scares. For me, the issue is more so that this is a pretext in order to get further involved into Ukraine itself. Meaning, do, if they've released something like this, you will come out and say, okay, this is going back to Ukraine. I will come out and say, hey, based on the evidence this comes out for Ukraine, the Western media would drop all context of that. The U.S. will blame Russia, just like it blamed them for the pipeline or blame them for the, the Zaporozhye or blame them for bombing um, their own camp, prison camp. Um, and they would basically run with that, meaning the reality of it matters less 
than basically what it's being used for. And the fact that the U.S. has set this pretext of, well, if they release a bomb, we will do X or NATO coming up, there will be massive consequences. It's very possible that a coalition of the willing, talking about Poland, the U.S., or somebody else, may intrude into Western Ukraine as a direct result of a bomb that Ukraine might have launched. I mean, does that make sense? Like the false flag in a sense. Yes, they may think there'd be radiological damage, but it seems like more than anything else, it's the value of being able to use it as a pretext to get further involved or ensconced into the conflict. What's your take? No, just no, flat out no. I know the people that make decisions in the United States government. I've been sitting with them before. There's not a single person in the U.S. government right now that's going to engage in Ukraine because Ukrainians set off a dirty bomb. Not a single one. You can have lunatics on CNN, lunatics on MSNBC, all the people whose opinion, frankly speaking, doesn't count. Say whatever they want. But at the end of the day, there's guys who know what nuclear weapons do, and they know that if they get involved in Western Ukraine on a Ukrainian false flag, they are creating the conditions for direct military conflict between NATO and Russia that will end in a general nuclear exchange where everybody dies. That's just the way it is. This is why you see Biden right now backtracking. I don't know if you saw the colonel, hard-charging colonel, 101st Airborne, screaming eagles, baby, flying. There it is, Ukraine. We're ready to go there if ordered to. And immediately everybody went, ah, nope, ain't nobody, going to, ain't nobody going to Ukraine. And they've made that point over and over and over again. If the Poles want to go to Ukraine, the Poles are committing unilateral suicide. NATO not, will not back them. No, the, the, this, this is, again, Zelensky and his inner circle are coming up with some sort of weird fantasy. But I'm telling you right now, that the Ukrainians setting off a dirty bomb in Nikolaev, A, will not trigger a Russian response. The Russians are too damn smart. <laughs> they are winning. Why would they say, oh, wow, oh, the Ukrainians have set off something we've told everybody about, so now we're going to overreact in a manner which triggers a NATO response. Well, there's Russia. All I have to do is wait 24 hours and have the IAEA, who has a lot more authority than MSNBC or CNN, say that radioisotope is traced to this material, which is, was in the possession of the Ukrainian government. This is a Ukrainian-controlled uh, device. It, it's, it's that easy. And then Russia says, hey, world, you still want to support these neo-Nazi dirty bomb-using thugs? And the world will say, nope, we're divorced. This war is over. Russia's not going to throw it away. I'm not saying that this dirty bomb scare isn't a problem. As I said, the Russians wouldn't make the phone calls unless they thought there was something real here. But the, the notion that Ukraine's going to get away with a false flag that's going to bring NATO in, this is literally Internet, LARP, Airsoft, Reddit, fantasy. It isn't going to happen. There's real people out there who have real jobs, and those jobs involve the survival of their state. And the United States has a whole bunch of the people out there that do that kind of job. And none of them are willing to sacrifice their families, their livelihood, their nation on behalf of some panicked Ukrainians who are going to commit suicide by detonating a dirty bomb in a Ukrainian city. That's just the bottom line fact. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining us. It's, it's Malik here. Um, very good points about the dirty bomb. I was doing some reading over that overnight, and I realized that it's a pretty ineffective battlefield weapon. And you mentioned um, certainly that it's more of a psychological 
weapon than anything that could cause any type of mass destruction. But when I was reading, I think it was, I think it was reading from the Wall Street Journal and talking about just how the U.S. and Western media has been playing this. So on the one hand, senior officials um, here in the States have come out and said they have absolutely no evidence that Russia was preparing to deploy um, this so-called dirty bomb. Of course, um, Ukrainians feel a little different about that. But I'm also reading that um, apparently Ukraine's nuclear agency is warning that Russian forces may be preparing a terrorist attack uh, with materials occupied at the um, Zaporizhia nuclear plant. So you have Russia um, accusing Ukraine of potentially um, trying to launch a dirty bomb, and then Ukraine responds saying that Russian forces are now, they may be involved in a terror, preparing a terrorist attack. Are you hearing anything about that? Because we know it's a dud when it comes to what they're saying about Russia and the uh, dirty bomb story. But are you hearing anything on the ground about Russia preparing a terrorist attack? Or is it just really more of the PSYOPs campaign coming out of Ukraine? I don't hear anything that's that's serious. I hear the same things you're hearing. But again, I mean... (laughs) If somebody who's actually investigated this for a living, um, I would just sit there and say, why would the Russians use material from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant? Um, the IAEA just went in there and did an inventory. Mm-hmm. They literally just went in there and did an inventory. Um, and that inventory, you know, it, 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 it checked that there was no material that had been diverted. All material can be accounted for. Um, and so what? If, so what? Now Russia takes. I don't know uh, how many how many pounds do they want? They want you know 500 pounds away, and, and how do they replace that? And then the other thing is, there's the unique signature aspect of it. Um, so they use it, and everybody's going to say, well, that came from this Operation Nuclear Power Plant, which the last time the IEA was there, uh, they con- they confirmed the inventory was complete, nothing missing. So you can't say this is old stuff that the Ukrainians had, and you've been in possession of the plant the entire time. And now it's appearing in a, 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 oh, come on, the Russians are smarter than this. They, first of all, they don't need to do this. Why would Russia need to do a terrorist attack? There's no reason. They're winning this war hands down. Everything's turning up roses for them right now. I mean, they are in the, they're finalizing this mobilization. They've solidified their defenses. The Ukrainians are getting slaughtered. There's nobody coming to their help. Um, winter is coming. Ukraine is about to freeze. Europe's about to freeze. Russia's warm, has gas, lots of ammunition, lots of food. And what, they're going to throw it all away to do a terrorist attack with a nuclear device that has a signature that points straight back to them? No. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, Scott, one more thing. Like you said, you've been in the room with the various people as they're having these conversations about either nuclear proliferation or being on the ground in order to um, inspect facilities. From your standpoint, what happens when um, Shoigu contacts, let's say, the UK or France or the United States on that private line saying, look, get your boy in order. These guys are trying to do something insane. What happens behind the scenes? I mean, despite the White House or despite the various people coming out saying, you know, this is not true, this is not happening, etc. We don't believe Russia in this case. Like you said, they don't do this um, willy-nilly. They're doing this because there's something serious that they're concerned about. So what happens behind the scenes when that call is made by, by Sergei Shoigu, Russian defense minister? Well, first of all, the, 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 the call goes through, and uh, if it's principle to principle, 
you'll they'll get the people online. They'll establish uh, the mode of, of communication, uh, translators, etc. Um, and let's say it's the UK. Wallace is going to receive this very respectfully. This is deadly serious. Wallace is surrounded while he's receiving this call with uh, very senior uh, British military officials and then some pretty sharp intelligence officials, all of whom are taking notes, listening. Uh, they're listening to the tone. They're listening to the specific words. They're assessing everything Shoigu says. And understand this, Shoigu knows because he has the same crew with him into every response that Wallace says. This is very carefully worded conversation where there's no wasted words, there's no gestures, there's no anger. It is specifically straightforward communications. We are saying this. We are hearing you. We are saying this. We are hearing you. We will act on this. We will take this seriously. And then they hang up the phone. Once that phone is hung up, Wallace then immediately turns to the intelligence guys and says, what do we got on this? Is there anything serious here? The last thing Wallace is going to do is hang up the phone and go, ha, it's all Russian propaganda. We're not paying any attention to this. Oh, he's going to turn to his people and say, this is serious. Boom. Turn to the military guys and say, what are the ramifications of this phone call? What does this mean? What is Russia preparing to do? You know, uh, what would happen if uh, kind of stuff? And then while they're doing that, he packages it up and he goes, briefs his civilian leadership. Uh, he'll go brief the prime minister. He'll brief the Cobra committee. And he'll say, we received this phone call. Now the politicians get involved. All right. Well, you know, we can't be seen as uh, giving credibility to this. You know, um, so uh, I need you to go out and uh, issue a, a statement to the press that says X, Y. And then the spinmeisters take over. But from the military standpoint, uh, they're investigating this, you know, why this phone call was made. The intelligence people are going to try and run down whatever intelligence sources are out there that they could, you know, either uh, confirm or, you know, contradict the, the, the Russian concerns. And frankly speaking, if they get something that could be seen as mollifying the Russian concerns, then they will get permission and they'll make a phone call back and say, hey, um, this is Wallace, Joygu, thank you very much for that call. We've taken it very seriously. Um, our people have run it down, and uh, we think X, Y, and Z could be could you know could be happening. That maybe you know, your people might have misinterpreted. Shoigu will say, "This is very serious. We still view this as a serious thing." But thank you for your response. And his people will run with it, and they'll find out what's going on too. These these conversations are life and death. This is the stuff that prevents war. There's no games being played here. The games are played by politicians at another level. But when these phone calls are made, they are deadly serious. They're an exchange of information. They're not done to score points, score political points. They're done to communicate concerns that could have, you know, existential consequences for both nations involved. From your standpoint, Scott, what's taking place on the ground currently um, in the regions? I mean, especially let's go to Kherson for the moment. Right now, Russia has been pulling out their, well, pulling out people basically um, getting people out of the way. Um, the U.S. media is reporting this as if the Russia, Russia is pulling out. They're acting as if, oh, Russia is losing this, they're pulling out. Whereas what it looks as if is if, if they're solidifying that particular territory and they're pulling human beings out because they don't want those human beings to be hit by let's say, artillery or anything to that effect. Not to mention um, there may be the issue also with the dam. Give me your take on this. I mean, what is taking place on the ground currently, either in Bakhmut or for that part? Kherson. Let's deal with Kherson first. 
the evacuation of civilians is exactly what you would expect any responsible nation to do. Um, the Russians don't use civilians as human shields. So they are taking a look at the concentration of Ukrainian forces that are building up in Kherson, and they're looking at, okay, what happens if they hit us with a mass 20,000, 30,000 force coming in? Do we sacrifice all our troops on the front line, or do we do a you know, graduated withdrawal to a secondary line of defense, third line of defense, bringing this force in, hitting them with artillery, uh, depleting their forces until we get to a final line of defense, which may be back to the suburbs of Kherson, where we hold, we kill, then we counterattack and drive them away. That's doctrinal defense, but it requires a defense in depth through territories where civilians reside. Now, having identified the battlefield the way they have, they get the civilians out of there. They also recognize that the Ukrainians in support of offense, because they have come into possession of long-range artillery systems, will be pounding the Russian rear areas. Uh, so now they get rid of the civilians there. Again, they don't use civilians as human shields. Uh, this, allow this gives them great flexibility. Uh, they don't have to worry about civilian casualties. They don't have to worry about feeding people. Um, you know, taking care of children, they get rid of all this. Plus, there's the dam issues you mentioned. Now, the Russians have been lowering the reservoir that the consequences of an uncontrolled release will be minimal, but the flooding of Kherson that would be, uh, would be the consequence of blowing up this dam, again, would put civilians at risk. So the Russians are doing everything they can. Now, they're not retreating. <laughs> they are reinforcing. They are digging in. This is a fight. And I will say this, the Ukrainians haven't Push the Russians back one inch. They've been they've been bashing their brains out literally on the Russian defensive lines. Now, some people say that this is just probing attacks to try and find the the weak seam. Well, they haven't found the weak seam yet. They may come in with twenty thousand screaming memes online with the tanks, and when that happens, the Russians will open up their defenses, draw them in, bring them into the Kherson region, tuck them into a cauldron, and destroy them piecemeal. But, and they will do this without any fear of civilians being in the way. Civilians complicate the Russian defense because the Russians actually have a soul, and they don't want to kill civilians in harm. So they're removing the civilians, unlike the Ukrainians, which have just historically used civilians as human shields. That's not me speaking. That's the Washington Post Human Rights Watch, uh, you know, notorious pro-Russian outlets. Um, and I said that with sarcasm. I know. I know. I was sitting here laughing. Go for it. But the, but the, you know, so, so that's what's going on. In Bakhmut, um, let's, let's remember what Bakhmut is. Bakhmut is the key to the, to the Ukrainian defenses in what's left of uh, the area of, uh, Don, uh, Don, uh, of the Donetsk Republic that they occupy. It is the most heavily fortified spot on earth. Um, the Ukrainians are dug in and dug in hard everywhere throughout the town. And the Russians are taking them down, block by block, street by street, in a very methodical, difficult battle. Um, you know, and, 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 and it's just hard fighting. Uh, it's extraordinarily hard fighting. Um, but the Russians are prevailing. They are chewing up the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians keep pouring in more troops, more troops, and those troops either get evacuated as wounded, abandoned as dead, um, you know, or captured. And then they pour in more. So, you know, Bakhmut is extraordinarily difficult fighting. Um, 
and it, it will continue. The Russians aren't letting up. It's not as though the Russians are saying, oh, well, we're, we, we've given up on this. No, they're moving ahead in extraordinarily difficult fighting, fighting like the which of the West hasn't seen. There's not a single person in the United States military that's experienced anything remotely close to what's going on in Bakhmut right now. Not one. I, there's not a single person in the U.S. military that's experienced anything remotely close to what's going on in Kherson right now. Not one. Um, so this is a level of fighting that um, in the West we only read about. We don't have anybody who's experienced this up close and personal like this. We haven't fought a war of this nature. Um, Russia's fighting. Russia's building up their reserves. They're building up their artillery. They're building up their armor. And Ukraine is burning through whatever it was that they had assembled over the course of the summer. Um, I was speaking to uh, uh, an informed uh, Russian uh, military analyst, and he said, you know, the, that, that NATO had, you know, was, was programmed to build two corps worth of uh, Ukrainian forces. The first corps uh, was released in September, and that's what you saw the fighting in um, Kherson and then in Kharkov, the great dramatic thing. But that corps was burned through. The second corps was supposed to be built up, but because of the casualties suffered, uh, rather than build up a second corps of structure, they, they just took the troops and fed them directly into the you know what remained of the first corps. So that's what's getting burned up right now. There's nothing in the pipeline being prepared. There's no third corps being prepared. There's no fourth corps being considered. Um, the Ukrainians have burned through everything, which is why we're seeing this desperation. Everything coming out of Ukraine right now is desperation from their uh, the, the minister who said, hey, if you don't give it, if you don't fund us, you know, the blackmail, um, give us eight billion euro a month, uh, a humanitarian wave is going to come your way. He's threatening Europe, saying, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And now we have Ukrainians basically saying, hey, we could have this uh, nuclear false flag, but we need we need NATO to come. You once again, you hear the Ministry of Defense talking about, oh, we have to close the airspace over Ukraine. Really? How are you going to do that? I mean, I've run campaigns. I've been involved in campaigns where you do that. The first thing you do is you take out all the air defense systems. Well, half of the Russian air defense systems are located in Russia. So what, you want to plan on bombing Russia to put a no-fly zone over Ukraine? This is all fantasy. Fantasy. And the West isn't willing to play the game. The only one that is who has skin in the game, so to speak, significantly is Poland. And they are the wild card. What will Poland do about Western Ukraine? Because this is a question that's going to have to be answered sooner or later, because when the Ukrainian army folds, as it's going to do, and the Russians come and knocking, uh, is Poland going to stand by and let uh, the, the Russians advance through Western Ukraine up to the border with NATO, or are they going to move in and take this territory themselves? And if they do that, what's going to happen at that point in time? Is NATO going to back Poland? Is Russia going to uh, push them back? Um, you know, that's the most dangerous thing going on right now. Not not this this dirty bomb. It's what's going to happen in Western Ukraine. It, it's Scott. It, it, you, you mentioned NATO. And just to ask another your thoughts on it, another question about the dirty bomb. So let's just let's play it out. Let's presume that a dirty bomb attack does happen. Um, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that NATO really won't care about who did it and will blame Russia anyway? And I ask this in the context of um, the U.S. on one hand saying that Russia, they have no evidence that Russia is planning any type of dirty bomb attack. But in the, on the other hand, they're saying they're characterizing this as a false flag operation um, that, you know, a pretext for something like this. 
So what do you think of NATO's position would be if a dirty bomb actually does happen? Will they just blame Russia? Well, I mean, their, their first thing will be, you know, their, their statement. I would assume, there was, because now we're getting into life and death seriousness here. And at that point in time, the games are over and their statement is this is an extraordinarily serious event that must be thoroughly investigated. And you did say, because you, you said that there were certain um, signatures that they would, on the, I guess, the, the bomb itself, they would be able to tell exactly where it came from? Within 24 hours, they wow. would exactly where this weapon came from. So at that point in time, you know, it doesn't matter what they say, the evidence will speak for itself if they actually go with that evidence. Right. But now let, let's, let's, let's play this game. Let's say NATO's party to this uh, conspiracy with Ukraine. That they're they're in it together, that they're looking for an excuse to 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 intervene. Then it doesn't matter because the bomb will go off. They don't say what it's going to say. Uh, blame the Russians, and then they'll intervene. This is why Shoigu made the phone call. <laughs> I'm just saying this is why Shoigu made the phone call because Shoigu, without threatening, um, let it be known that uh, you know any. Uh, and you read the Russian words, they were concerned about uncontrolled escalation. And Shoigu basically said that in, that this could precipitate uncontrolled escalation that could lead us to a global conflict. Um, so Shoigu is letting NATO know, this is why I said every word matters, putting a marker down saying, uh, if you if you think you're going to exploit this, don't, because we won't let you. You're you're. You won't get a tank across the border. You won't get an airplane across the border. We will take everything out instantly. So don't do it. Um, and I think, you know, first of all, I don't think, I don't think there's any serious people in NATO that would even play that game. So I don't think NATO's playing that game. What I think NATO is doing is looking at Ukraine, going, "Oh my God, the spoiled brat is." You know. Well, I'm curious. What is? What do you think the communications are going to Ukraine at this point? I mean, if indeed NATO is thinking to themselves, this is insane, these guys, like you said, these spoiled brats. I mean, it's as if NATO wants Ukraine to die in silence. It's like, yeah, we know it's bad, but we want you to keep quiet as you're dying as opposed to going this um, escalatory route. What is the conversation going on behind the scenes with them two, if you had to guess? Well, my guess is, well, I mean, I, I, I could do more than guess. Oh, yeah, please. Lloyd Austin, Lloyd Austin just gave a, a press conference. How many HIMARS is the United States sending to Ukraine? Well, they haven't been built yet. <laughs> like they're sending some that haven't been built yet. <laughs> well, we don't have them. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, and my, 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 you know, that's, that's not a statement you make in public um, unless you're sending the signal to the Ukrainians that, and, 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 and all the other statements that are being made. Um, if, you, you know, you, I think the signal being sent is, you, you know, Ukraine, um, you're in a tough position. We know you're in a tough position, but don't, you know, if you are going to get, if you're going to turn this into something that impacts us, then we're abandoning. We're walking away. We're done. That, you know, we can work with you to manage an off-ramp. And that's what everybody in NATO is talking about right now is trying to find a diplomatic off-ramp. It's amazing how in the course of less than a month, we went from, you know, there will not be a diplomatic solution until... From Ukrainian story and reparations to pay Putin's in the Hague to, hey, uh, yeah, uh, we, we, 
we think we can live with this current situation we have right here, but you know, we, we need a we, we need a ceasefire and we need to find a way out of this. Amazing how that happened in less than a month. It's because Russia's winning and NATO knows it. And so I think everybody's telling Ukraine that if you work with us responsibly, we'll try and find an off ramp that at least keeps you in power. Um but if you do something stupid like this, and it's the same market that was put down about Daria Dugina, why do you think the, the, the CIA called the New York Times about her assassination, saying it was done by the Ukrainian intelligence service on the orders of the presidency? Why did they do that? Because they're, that's a direct way of throwing Ukraine under the bus, saying, we're not on board with this, guys. Stop it. The same thing with the Crimea bridge attack. Stop it. Why do you think the New Yorker just ran the piece that they just ran that gave, you know, that, that starts to spin the level of intelligence that has been provided, admitting that we provided the coordinates for the to the Moscow the ship that was sunk, but that's it, that we we only give some information. It's a bald-faced lie. We know we give much more than that, but the U.S. is in the process of the controlled spin, the controlled spin to mitigate the political harm here at home that were brought about by the collapse of Ukraine. So, yes, we're telling the Ukrainians, you're going to die. And we need you to die quietly. We need you to go gently into that good night because you're going down, can't bring us down with you. We're not willing to do that. And so I think that kind of message is being given to the Ukrainians uh, to, you know, to, to, to understand the reality of the situation that, that, that you face. You know, we gave, we gave it our best shot. Uh, it's over. And now we need to find a way out of this. Um, don't do anything stupid to spoil that. What happens when they lose? I mean, like, give me a larger perspective of this. Um, the U.S. tries to exert, and more to the point, NATO was supposed to be built with this idea of being able to fight basically the Soviet Union. Um, Soviet Union goes belly up. NATO continues, and that just continues. It propagates itself and expands um, to the border. Um, within a very short period of time, they were out of weapons. So is it just the Soviet stockpiles that these guys had that they're out of? or like, I'm trying to understand how this organization could have been built up over the last 40, 50 years and within the context of less than a year, basically go belly up in regards to what they can provide to Ukraine, either in weapons, um, in that very specific sense. What is your take on this? I mean, or is it just NATO is somewhat different and what they were giving Ukraine was, um, you know, was it their main weapons? Give me your take on this, because um, this didn't entirely makes sense to me how NATO could just go belly up that quick in eight months, despite the fact that they've been in existence for over the last 40, 50 years. NATO has been belly up since 1992. Uh, when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union went away, um, yes, NATO expanded uh, politically, but militarily, NATO's been all about the, um, you know, the, the image of a unified military alliance, but not a single European nation was willing to actually continue to invest in the military aspect of NATO to the degree that they had during the Cold War. Uh, the United States was looking for a peace dividend. That's why we drew down from 300,000 troops to 60,000 troops. That right there gives you a, an idea of the, of, of the scope and scale of what happened to NATO. 300,000, 60,000. That's, that's a huge reduction. And every NATO military underwent a similar um, reduction in size and in capability. I'm telling you right now, when I was in the Marine Corps to train to be able to fight the Soviet threat, I was in the field 
220 plus days a year in the field, 220 plus days a year doing live fire and maneuver exercises. We trained nonstop because that's the level of proficiency that was absolutely required. You know, and, re- and remember a unit, you know, we, every year we have Marines leave and we have new Marines come in. You never get to rest on your laurels. We finish one train exercise and go, we're good, but we have to go out next month and start all over again because we got new Marines. Uh, and so we, that, that's the train. That was very expensive, very expensive. And nobody's doing anything remotely to that kind of training today. No one trains like that. Not the United States, definitely not NATO. The Germans went from 12 armored, divi- or 12 armored brigade equivalents down to, I think, three or two. Now they've uh, they had to cannibalize all those to get one battalion deployable to Lithuania because they don't train, they don't equip, they don't do anything, they don't even maintain. Half their air force is sitting on the runway, can't fly because they just gave up fixing the airplanes because it's too expensive. They were diverting their money elsewhere. All NATO militaries are like that. So, you know, when they started supporting Ukraine, you know, remember, we supported Ukraine by providing them with a limited number of Javelin missiles, offensive systems that were designed to be a deterrence, saying to the Russians, hey, we've got anti-tank missiles now that can take out your tanks. Well, we didn't have enough of them. Um, you know, it, it was stupidity to, to put all your, your, you know, bet to bet everything on Javelins, but it was more about, you know, the politics of it, not the reality of it. Once this war started, uh, the Ukrainians chewed through their Soviet era uh, inventory. They chewed, they chewed through all the javelins. They were using javelins. You know, we produce, I forget the, the, the number of 2,000 a year. They were using 500 a week. Wow. That's an and yeah. yeah. So they fired one, one year's worth of production in one month. And then we started putting more in, yeah, but we're not producing. We're not on wartime production footing yet. And we're just chewing through the javelins. And suddenly the military says, stop. We can't send anymore because if the North Koreans come across the border now, we don't have any javelins to stop them. If the Russians decide to go into Poland, we don't have any javelins to stop them. We got no javelins left. We, you know, we, we've used everything up. We did the same thing with stingers. We gave them stingers. They're popping them off left, right. They're firing a stinger missile that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars at a $30,000 wood and plastic drone. Okay, the Russians will play that game all day long. Um, the same thing, the German air defense, they're popping off these, these missiles, the NASAMs that we send in, popping off these missiles. They're expending missiles that cost $1.2 million each against a $30,000 drone. Russia's like, please, more. Do it again, do it again, do it again. NATO wasn't geared to fight a war. They, and remember, they, since 2002, NATO's been in Afghanistan, and that's been their singular focus with you know, General McChrystal uh, coming down there and begging, Operation Ten Cup, begging the Germans to divert every resource they had to supporting what's going on in Afghanistan. And NATO lost. NATO has nothing, literally nothing. They're not geared for war. They're not prepared for war. They don't have the inventory for war. They were able to support Ukraine by dipping into the old Soviet stocks that were mothballed in a lot of these former Warsaw Pact nations. Um, and they've done that. But for instance, the Poles are like, we've given up all our T-72 tanks. You're supposed to replace them with M1s. Where are they? Well, we're slow on the game. 
So Poland's feeling a little naked right now. So is every nation that we've asked to provide uh, these, these weapons. And there's just nothing left. And that's because NATO was never serious about fighting a war with Russia. Meanwhile, Russia, watching NATO expansion, was serious about fighting a war with NATO. Not that they wanted it, but they've been preparing. They have the stockpiles. Their military industry is fully geared up right now, just cranking out missile, missile, tank, tank, ammunition, ammunition. Um, They can go as long as as they want. NATO's got nothing. They literally have nothing there. Wow. Scott, yeah, there was a report that apparently came out that said if Russia, even if they stop producing now, that basically they'd still be able to fire missiles for the next six months. Scott, thank you for this, man. Really appreciate it. Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You can follow Scott on Telegram at Scott Ritter. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul. Back for the last hour. See you shortly. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm joined with Malik Abdul. That means you guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Scott is always so strong in everything that he oh, says. Oh, good grief. He is. Like it, and it's good because I was reading about the whole dirty bomb thing. Yeah. And so I, I didn't, I mean, dirty bomb sounds like huge. I mean, yeah. it sounds like a huge deal. Yeah. A bomb is a huge deal. Right. But it sounds like you're putting nuclear material in a bomb and I right. that it's less spreads. impactful yeah. than what I thought it was. Yeah. But it's the psychological value mm-hmm. that matters. Mm-hmm. It's like nuclear, bomb, dirty. What they hear is nuclear and they hear bomb part. And then Zelensky, they, the Ukraine comes back and say, well, they're planning a terrorist attack at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Is it, is it a wild? They're doing it, too. I mean, that's the <laughs> aggravating thing about this, right? It's like they didn't even. It shouldn't be a tit for tat. They don't even think of the story. Right. Like, it's like, um, dude, I think you're stealing my car. No, you're trying to steal your car. <laughs> it's my car. Why do I need to steal my car? Dude, you're trying to blow up my car. No, you're trying to blow up your car. Why do I need to blow up my car? It's my car. And it's like over and over and over again that keeps happening. And it's almost like they don't even put any. It's comical. Le- yeah. At this point. It becomes ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah. Love Scott. So I have some morning news for you, some breaking news and a little update on what happened, especially on Tuesday, earlier Tuesday. Rishi Sunak has officially become UK prime minister after King Charles III asked him for, for, to form a new government during their Tuesday meeting. Sunak emerged as the sole contender in the Tory leadership race on Monday after his rival Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson both pulled out. The country's third PM in a year was announced shortly after Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 Committee on Backbench Tories. Um, During his Monday public address, Sunak pledged to bring our party and our country together because that is the only way we will overcome the challenges we face. Earlier on Tuesday, King King Charles III accepted the resignation of the one that they did not trust, Liz Truss who only lasted 44 days as UK Prime Minister. In domestic news, on Monday, 30 Democratic lawmakers from the U.S. House of Representatives, led by Representative Pramila Jayapal, Chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and member of the squad, 
wrote to President Joe Biden urging him to alter his Ukraine strategy and hold direct negotiations with Russia, quoting, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. The group of progressive House Democrats who urged President Joe Biden on Monday to make that change to U.S. strategy regarding the security crisis in Ukraine made a U-turn within hours of sending their letter to the POTUS. Under a wave of pressure from other Democrats, more than likely Nancy Pelosi included, the group led by Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus Chair Representative Jay Paul then released a statement backtracking. They backed it all the way up like a semi, a rig, saying, let me be clear, we are united as Democrats in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for democracy and freedom. Representative J.L. Paul announced, adding that nothing in the letter advocates change in that support. The statement went on to say that although diplomacy is an important tool that can save lives, it is just one tool. So they don't support a change in strategy. Nancy Pelosi, she knows how to whip her caucus. Democrats are at risk of losing their legislative majority in Congress as Republicans challenge Republicans challenge for control of both the House and Senate in midterm elections two weeks from today on November 8th, although the upper chamber fight, which is the Senate, could come down to the wire. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives will be contested alongside 35 Senate seats to determine which party will lead the legislative process through the second half of U.S. President Joe Biden's term. The elections come amid issues such as historic inflation, the conflict in Ukraine, and the aftermath of the Supreme Court's decision to return abortion regulation to states, all of which are expected to play a role in the outcome of the midterms. Interestingly enough, for all of what we heard of during the summer, what post-June, post-Roe, doesn't seem like abortion is rising high on the list for the American people. Democrats, yes. The rest of the American people, not so much. Inflation, economy, crime, those are the top concerns. Moving on, a somewhat and not surprisingly dazed U.S. President Joe Biden, who is 79 years old, appeared to lose his way to the White House following a tree planting event on the South Lawn on Monday. Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden planted a ceremonial elm tree in the afternoon in the honor of Del Haney, superintendent of the White House grounds, who earlier this month celebrated 50 years on the job. Footage showed that as the ceremony ended, Biden went wondering and started walking in one direction, but suddenly stopped, seemingly confused, asking his security team, where do I go? As his staff ushered him onto the right course back to the White House, the Democratic POTUS is heard saying that he wanted to go in the other direction. Now, on the South Lawn, which is, of course, the south end of the White House, the White House is pretty big. You can see it. You know where you're going. But Joe Biden claims he wanted to go in a different direction. I don't believe it. Joe Biden is known for shaking hands with thin air. Just shaking hands with thin air. 
Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona called the test scores a wake-up call after the test results from the National Assessment of Educational Progress showed historical declines in math and reading scores for fourth graders and eighth graders, which Cardona has called appalling and unacceptable. Quoting, the results in today's NRC are appalling and unacceptable. This is a moment of truth for education. How we respond to this will determine not only our recovery, but our nation's standing in the world. Result, recent results from the NIEP exam showed the nation's report card a steep decline in math and reading scores among fourth and eighth graders. Peggy Carr, who is the National Center for Education Statistics Commissioner, said the math results were historic and the largest decline in mathematics has that we've observed in the entire history of this assessment. Those COVID lockdowns seems to be having an impact. The Biden administration on Monday urged U.S. Congress to pass a ban on the so-called assault weapons as soon as possible after another, another deadly shooting occurred in a school in St. Louis, Missouri. Every day that the Senate, quoting Biden here, that the Senate fails to send an assault weapons ban to the president's desk or waits to take another action is a day too late for families and communities impacted by gun violence. This is actually a statement from White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters on Monday. St. Louis Police Lieutenant Colonel said on Monday that the three individuals had been killed in the incident, including the gunman. This was not a situation like we saw in Uvalde, Texas. They got the guy and they got him early. Unfortunately, there were some others who passed. In a Monday press conference, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced three new federal cases against 13 individuals, 12 of whom are accused of being Chinese government agents. Garland's appearance was notable as he was accompanied by Deputy AG Lisa Monaco, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson. Quoting Garland, over the past week, the Justice Department has taken several actions to disrupt criminal activity by individuals, individuals working on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China. In international news, Iranian Armed Forces Chief of Staff Mohammed Bagari has told Brussels what it can what it can do with any assets of his that it happens to find after having his name added to the bloc's latest sanctions package. Quoting. I have a humanitarian proposal for the EU. From today, I give them the power of attorney in implementing the sanctions they've prepared, although allowing them to identify and confiscate all the properties and assets belonging to Major General Mohammed Hossein Bagari in banks around the world and use them to buy coal for Europe's citizens who face a tougher winter ahead. The commander quipped in a statement put out late Sunday. Bagari said he understands why the U.S. and EU have sanctioned him, giving, quoting, giving that the victory of the Islamic Revolution, the armed forces of the Islamic Republic were included in various sanctions lists, but turned this, this threat into an opportunity. Moving on to France, French President Emmanuel Macron has urged Washington to start negotiations to stop the Ukrainian crisis. Quoting, 
we need the United States to sit down at the negotiating table to advance the peace process in Ukraine, Macron said speaking to reporters after his visit to the Vatican. Pointing to the relationship of trust between Pope Francis and Biden, who is also a Catholic, Macron suggested that Pope Francis can influence him so that the United States resumes its involvement in resolving the crises in Haiti and Ukraine. French lawmakers on Monday failed to pass two motions of no confidence and the government lodged by leftists and right parties after the prime minister forced a controversial budget through parliament. Yale Braun Pivet, the president of the lower house National Assembly said the motion filed by the leftist coalition Noops won 239 of the 289 votes, while that of the far-right National Rally won 90. In a rare move, lawmakers from Marine Le Pen's National Rally backed the rival motion despite her initial refusal to endorse it. Moscow considers unacceptable the fact that the United States had not issued visas to the Russian delegation to the IAEA International Ministerial Conference on Nuclear Energy in the 21st century. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria, Maria Zaharova said the conference will be held in Washington from October 26th through the 28th. This week, the Russian delegation comprising representatives of state corporation Rosatom and technical watch, watchdog Rostechnadzor. Rostechnadzor! Yes, in our control room. They're elated that I got it right. Can I say it again? Rostechnadzor. <laughs> Plan to take part in it. <laughs> the United Sounds so good, I got to say it again. <laughs> right? The United States never issued visa to the Russian delegates, despite the fact that they that the relevant applications were submitted by them in advance in accordance with the established procedure. Thus, Russians' participation in an important international event under the auspices of the IAEA was blocked in an absolutely unacceptable way and without any reason, Zaharova said in a statement. Tech news, with Elon Musk reportedly poised to finalize his deal and purchase Twitter for $44 billion before the expiration of the court deadline on October 28th, the social media company is under increasing pressure, Axios reported citing Twitter insiders. The drawn-out and dramatic takeover saga has taken its toll, making it tough to carry on with business as usual, according to insiders cited by the outlet. Discussing long-term deals with clients and vendors has become particularly challenging amid the uncertainty, Twitter employees said, adding, people are just exhausted. It can be conflicting because as a shareholder, you're happy, but as an employee, there's a lot of uncertainty. On this day in history, 1854, the infamous change of the Light Brigade during the Battle of Bal Balakava in the Crimean, Crimean War results in over 100 killed. 1962, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Adlai Stevenson demands USSR U.N. Rep. Valerian Zorin answer regarding Cuban missile bases, saying, I am prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over. In 1971, U.N. votes to expel the Chinese nationalist rule Taiwan and admit Communist People's Republic of China. And in 2016, Chinese Prime Chinese Premier Xi Jinping unveils his new ruling council in the Great Hall of the People. None of the five are young enough.
to succeed him. These are your headlines for today, Tuesday, October 25th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Spooknik. Also, just a heads up, Brittany Griner's appeal was um, re- refused. Yeah, rejected. Again. Yeah. <laughs> and so her chance, her way out, she's apparently going to be sent to a um, prison camp or what is it called? A um, penal facility. And all things been equal, her chances are going to be based on some kind of diplomatic negotiation where there's some kind of prisoner exchange. Um, look, I expected that. I fully get that the United States often looks at the world with a certain level of hypocrisy. Thousand percent get it. Um, if Brittner Griner was caught here, they would also arrest her here. Yes. I mean, let's be very clear about that. She, if she would got, be arrested. If she was in Texas. TSA yeah. would have arrested her. Yes. If she got arrested in Texas or if she got caught in Texas with marijuana, she would have been arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, even even uh, because she had a, what is that, a, a vape, vape pen? Yeah, yeah, she had a vape pen. Even a vape pen. Yeah. yeah. And she so it's like, arrested. I get it's pot. I don't see the reason you should put people in cage for pot. Right. Thousand percent. But let's be clear. Our own laws have the same effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like this argument that, oh, this is purely a political prosecution. Look, there may be politics around it, but all things been equal. If she was caught in Texas, if she was caught in Idaho, Indiana. If she, if she were caught in many other places that don't have the, that hadn't decriminalized it. Right. Yeah. She would have been in a worst case situation, because depending upon illegal. where she was. It's illegal. Like, at the end of the day, it's illegal. Yeah. Even though they very, even with TSA, they become very lax in right. their um, but if they But if they catch it. Yeah. They're going to do something They have the it. right to do it. It's kind of yeah. like, you, you, you know speeding is wrong. Right. Well, some cops may stop you. Some may not. Yeah. Some give you a pass. But you're still wrong. And, but, and again, it depends on the country, too. There are some countries that are, look, in Egypt, Tramadol was illegal, for example. People take Tramadol for pain meds. Oh, and, pain and so, med. okay. yeah, it's a pain medication, especially for neurological pain. Um, there was a woman who was there. She had like 400 in her bag. And she was like, look, this is pain medication. What are you talking about? Missing the fact that you're in a different country with different rule sets around the medication or the drugs that you're That is a lot of pain meds. That's that a lot. Like I mean, trafficking, <laughs> some distribution. Going you may get on. 120 for a month. That right. might be the highest amount that I've come across. Yeah. Um, maybe 150 a month. 400 is impressive. I mean, but if you, were, if she was like me though, and she was traveling to multiple countries, like we were going, supposed to be going for like four or five months, mm-hmm. then it kind of makes sense because right. it's difficult to get it outside of the country. Because you can get your doctor to approve that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so her thing, she was, you know, like I can't believe you're doing this. It's like, well, look, it's illegal here. I mean, I, it's not that I love it. Don't misunderstand me. It's not that I love the fact that they're putting that woman in a cage. I don't love that at all. But I don't love it when they put people in cages here. Right. Just to be very clear about it. And there are people who are still in jail now. Yes. 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 And there are not people who are standing, you know, protesting on their behalf. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. There are plenty of people in jails all across the world. Um, But for whatever reason, Griner is the one that gets the the knot. Look, and this is, I'm not putting a knife in her. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that it is somewhat hypocritical for us to look at that and act as if they should let her go. You know, it's like if somebody was arrested here, would we just let them go? No, right. it doesn't work that way. I mean, and we know. want her to come home. Of course, we, we want her to come we home. We want her to come home. I mean, we had, we even had Jesse Jackson on here, and mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson was on the show basically saying that he wanted to go to Russia to try to broker a deal. I to want get Jesse her. to sit. Jesse don't need to be gone. You don't Jesse, want Jesse to go. Jesse, Jesse did it Jesse once before. Is aging. Jesse, Jesse is aging, he but Jesse moves around. I want the brother to stay here. I don't want. I don't know. Around. I respect the hell out of that because he's like better that, him than um uh what's his name, 
Oh, uh, Dennis, Dennis Rodman. Rodman. Yeah, Dennis Rodman. Yeah, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> Dennis Rodman got some. Dennis Rodman's still a young guy, relatively, so he can go out there and make that trip with the red hair in Moscow, shaking Putin's hand and all this other stuff. Going to North Korea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Jesse Jackson, when he was on the show, made the point of saying Ronald Reagan. He did something and brought somebody back home. Ronald Reagan didn't expect him to be able to mm-hmm. do it, and he mm-hmm. was able to do it mm-hmm. anyway. And so his thought is, I'm going to do this. I respect the hell out of that. I mean, there's an episode of Star Trek Discovery. Don't watch it. Star Trek Discovery is horrible. Last season was okay. But there was one. Are you uh, a Trekkie, techie? Oh, I am a massive Trek. Oh, don't even get me started. (laughs) I could spend the the next hour talking about Star Trek. And the audience is probably like, don't don't say it. Don't bring it up. Don't get them started. Um, But there's one episode of Discovery with with Captain Pike. Christopher Pike is the best thing that came out of Discovery by far. And he needs, we have time. We, we're going to be taking callers. He needed to um, get a crystal. I mean, it's Star Trek, right? He needed to get a time crystal that gave you ability to see in time and everything else. But it was a consequence for it. If you pull the crystal, you're stuck with whatever future you see when you grab the crystal. Pike touches the crystal and sees himself. Anybody who watches Star Trek knows Pike gets blown up. And his, like, in a little machine, that just like, beep, beep, yes or no, because he's got screwed up, like, the explosion. He sees that. And... He falls backwards, like flipping out, like, oh, my God, because he's not just saying he's feeling. He's experiencing it as if he was there and he's seeing himself being blown up. He has a job to do, though. He's a captain. And as a captain, he's like getting himself together. I'm a Star Trek captain. I'm this and that. And there was this moment where this idea of him being just a person um, was less than his image of himself as a captain, meaning as a person, you're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. As a captain, I have a responsibility that goes beyond, that exceeds. My Good notion point. of being a person. Mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all things being equal, Jesse Jackson is basically said, my life is about civil rights. Mm-hmm. My life is about peace. My life is about bringing people together and everything else. And so even though I am older, even though I am weaker, even though I am tired, most likely of I'm this, still capable. I will still go and take that trip. God, mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Love that. No, you love that. Have that. That you have to respect. Yeah, absolutely. But like you say, get some age on them. But some, and, people, some people that age will say, you know what? I'm too old for this. I've, I've, I fought my battles. But he's not, but that's not who he is. Even with mm-hmm. his, um, the, org, the Rainbow Push Coalition, which yeah. is, you know, it's an unfortunate thing because Jesse Jackson is still the face of the Rainbow Push Coalition. He yeah. wasn't able to leave it with his kids, so it'll probably die with after him. him. Yeah. But he hasn't prepared anybody else to kind of take over because he's literally, be, Jesse Jackson is traveling places, even you remember doing the, pandemic mm-hmm. i was like oh jesse please like, don't stop. go please yeah. don't go yeah. like jesse put on a mask and he he would wear a mask but there were times you would see him photographed yeah but this is like in the like the herman cain height of you know when yeah. people were dying and i was like oh jesse yeah. and then when he he and his wife ended up contracting remember when they actually caught covid oh i, I didn't like, know they caught covid yeah so it was both he and his wife his wife ended up staying in the facility longer mm-hmm. than him but both of them caught it because, you know, when they had the protests out here, I think it was the Venezuelan protests, Jesse Jackson came off of that to get food to the building itself because their thought was those security guards are not going to lay a hand on Jesse Jackson. And they were basically daring them. Like, like, touch him. Yeah, Dare you right. to touch him. When he, it, in 2020, I think it was, he was at Howard University and fell. Oh, jeez. Jesse. But he wants to go. You can't. You can't stop him. Like, you can't stop him. And that's the thing. You can't stop him. He's 80, whatever. He has some age on him. Yeah. He has some age on him. I I respect the hell out of him for that. He defines his duty in life. This is my role. This is my responsibility in life to be this person. I'm going to do it until I die. And I'm going to do it until I drop dead. Wow. Um, But look, we're taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. 
Um, and yeah, we can talk about some more Star Trek now. No, um, <laughs> but NASA, oh, speaking of that, NASA has just come out. It is trending on Twitter. At the very least, it was trending on Twitter. NASA has come out with their organization that they're going to use to investigate UFOs. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yep, yes. they they they're commit um the the committee of sixteen. You mean? Uh huh. That's yep. it. Mm-hmm. Yep. NASA NASA's is unidentified area phenomena research team, and just think about that. We're at this point now, for 50, 60 years. This is swamp gas. This doesn't exist. This isn't real. These pilots are just seeing things. And now, within a few years, new day. And that's why I was asking Beatty. Like when you talk to UFO people, they are, I don't want to say shocked by it. But it is like they went for 40, 50 years basically being told they were conspiracy theorists. They were full of it. They don't know what they're talking about. This is a nonsense field, all this stuff. And then within a few years, um, Pentagon releases those three UFO videos and the mm-hmm. world changes almost overnight. Mm-hmm. New York Times right there, bombshell piece. Mm-hmm. You get, I mean, New Year, in fact. And I think it must have, it, it was the, the Pentagon releasing yeah. that. That's what it was because I was trying to figure out myself, how do we— How, how did this happen? Yeah. and Because we've been talking about this forever. Yeah. Like, what's the urgency? What changed? Yeah. What changed was That's those videos. It was. it was the Tic Tac, Nimitz, and it was uh, something else. It was another Go Fast or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And depending on initially, it was like, those aren't ours. Mm-hmm. Those aren't ours. Mm-hmm. And then later, it was like, okay, those are ours. And then after, they, you know, they came on and said, okay, those are our videos, and then they released those other videos. Uh, but we have a caller. Brave, ATL. What's going on, man? How you doing this morning? Hey, good morning, guys. I uh, wanted to, I was calling to talk to you about um, your your conversation with uh, with Kim yesterday. Uh, yes. The, um, the, uh, the the immunization scheduling of the COVID vaccine. Right. I wanted to say really. I wanted to say really quickly, um, Malik. I got a chance to check out that uh, debate uh, with you, Reese, and uh, Robert, and the other um, uh, left and uh, right uh, mm-hmm. representatives. It, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I. Um, I wish that uh, that conversation. I wish that could have been. Or if you guys do it again, I wish it could be a thing where it's more of a conversation um, on not just things that that um, both sides agree on, but just moving forward. I don't know if you guys remember how back back in the day when I was younger. I'm 45, right? So back in the day, they used to have um, annually uh, the state of state of black state of the black America, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I think um, I know. They, they've tried. It's been tried um, a few times here in the past recently, but <clears throat> I think that the conversations that that you guys were having in that debate um, are, are needed, but not needed from opposing sides. Because um, I, I've called him before and said, I, I just give I, an example, Brave. Like give an example of the opposing side thing that needed to be spoken of, almost in a unity format. For 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 example, when they were touching on when they were touching on one. Um, uh, um, abortion. It's probably a, a bad, it's probably a lightning rod for Bay, right? Malik <laughs> <laughs> remembers, but uh, Robert did not play on that. Joke. But um, it, they, they, uh, so you had you had the the, the leftists, uh, the leftists on the panel, uh, panel members who um, were themselves uh, pro-life, right? The, um, who, 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 and when speaking for themselves, were saying how you know uh, the black family. Needs to, needs to protect life and things of that nature, right? It was more, the divide came down more along ideological lines, in my opinion. Um, and, and because, I mean, when you, when you consider black people, especially in the South, we're, we're traditionally, because we've, we've been traditionally conservative, not until you introduce Democrat and Republican politics, right, and policy that we start finding ourselves leaning left or leaning right as, as it applies to party, right? Not so much um, ideology, but party. 
those are the things that divide that divide us heavily because you know a lot of black people most black people are going to vote democrat to hold back the the republican monsters right not not accepting the not understanding the fact that um, the monsters are in both parties right yeah and <laughs> right, you know right. what brave that's actually a very good point and i pointed out on stage that there are many of the things that we discussed on that saturday if you get us behind closed doors, there's going to be a lot of agreement. The problem is, is that when we get out in public, we don't play as nicely. And so we kind of go to our, you know, different sides. But I think there is a benefit of having both the ideological debate, which is a conservative approach to things like um, the economy versus a progressive approach. But I also think that, yeah, like you said, we need to have moments where the right and the left can agree on these sort of things. So I think that part is actually important too, not just where we disagree on everything, but there are things that we, where we find common ground. So very good point. Right. Yeah. And w when you made that point on stage, it was like, it was like it was speaking to me because it's the truth. It's, it's, it's obviously the truth, right? We don't, we don't divide until they give us something to divide over. Right. But, um, to, to the uh, conversation you guys were having uh, with Manila yesterday, I just wanted to, I just wanted to uh, toss in this one this one thing. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, coverage is being given and conversation is being had about the concerns of that pressing uh, pushing us towards a mandate for children that's unnecessary and that's valid. I just wanted to interject with um, the the uh, um, the point of uh, the point of uh, Pfizer trying to get. The uh, the vaccine on um, the the children's immunization schedule. Right. Um, it, it's it's been argued that a large part of that is more about them getting um, more coverage and protection from lawsuits from from being able to be sued because once the once the uh, emergency once the emergency um, uh, authorization goes away, right? Um, they lose that protection from from um, from lawsuits, because as of right now, you can't sue them for anything for all the adverse events that are being reported. And so, once uh, um, once a vaccine is introduced to the uh, child immunization scheduling, um, they they get a, uh, a shielding from. And this is not just for the uh, COVID vaccine; this is for all vaccines, right? They get protection from those from those types of lawsuits and stuff. I see. I see. That makes sense on a certain level. If the CDC backs it, then all of a sudden, how are you going to take me to court for it if the CDC is basically saying it's valid? Brave, thank you, my man. Always appreciate your call. Um, Pete, we have about one minute. What's going on, my man? Pete from Florida. Hey, man. It's hard to catch you guys, but you bring out such a great product. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. I just wanted to I just want to touch on uh, a real important subject that's being ignored by the mainstream media, and that is Kevin McCarthy basically saying if the Republicans win, hey, Ukraine funding may not be going through. Oh, I did this in a monologue yesterday. We were talking about this yesterday, um, even with Kim Iverson. Um, yeah, that's a big deal, right? I mean, the progressive members coming out saying, hey, maybe we need to, you know, the Biden needs to do something different on this Ukraine issue. Now, of course, they folded almost immediately. But I think there is something to be said that these guys are running in the midterms and all of a sudden this comes up just before the midterms. And you start to think to yourself, is it that they're getting some level of polling or some level of pushback from the people who support them that this tact without, you know, this kind of blank check for Ukraine, even at our own expense, is too far? I don't know. But I do think it's big news. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, Pete. Thank you, man. Always appreciate it. So let's do this. We have our guests. We have KJ No. We're going to have this conversation about China. Uh, Xi Jinping has just been reelected for this third term. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines.
Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. The call-in segment at this point has been ended, however. We'll get you tomorrow. But I want to bring in our guests. We have the one and only KJ No. KJ No is a political analyst, journalist, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. He's a contributor to the book, Capitalism on a Ventilator, once censored by Amazon. It is now available at iacenter.org. KJ, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. No, it is glad. Um, I am glad to have you. We're better for you, uh, for you being here. So President Xi Jinping was reelected as leader of the Communist Party, as the Chinese Communist Party, on Sunday. And this is going to be his third term. Um, he secured another five-year term in power. Now, the West is reporting this as if he has an iron grip on power, that he basically— um, well, yeah, that would call it an iron grip on power. This is his third term. And there was this conversation that was taking place with right here. Former Chinese President Hu Jintao left the closing session, um, a key Communist Party meeting, abruptly on Saturday when the nation's new leadership was expected to be elected. Now, some of the people in the West was making a point of saying that he was being roughed up or something was happening to the guy. He just came across as if he looked a bit ill. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this. What is going on with the situation with the previous leader? Yes, I wouldn't make too much out of it. You know, if you watch the videos when he's coming in mm-hmm. to the, uh, you know, in, in, coming into his seat, you see that he's being led into his seat. He's clearly old, clearly senile. He needs prompting for everything. So I see. He, he's led to his seat. He has to be prompted to sit down. And then uh, when he leaves, there's the same kind of prompting. And I have a colleague who's medical social worker who's worked with, you know, hundreds of uh, people, uh, elderly people. He says, these are all classical symptoms. When people have, when people get old and they have dementia, they are disoriented. They need prompting and cues. They need to be told uh, where and how to do things. Uh, And sometimes, you know, they may, uh, you know, they may not, uh, not do things on the first prompt. So, uh, he said that these are classical symptoms, and also that the response of the people around them is also classical. And so uh, I think that this is the West, uh, you know, removing all the context. Yeah. And it's using a cinematic technique, we would call it ostranyenye, where you just kind of really narrow down and focus and amplify and slow down everything. And once you do that, every slow, everything looks strange weird and suspect yeah that's exactly what they've done here it's like look at him you know blink his eye this way and he's blinking it because they're beating him up or something yeah they they blew it out of proportion um here's another thing so the lineup uh, right here um z also revealed the full lineup of the 24 member politburo for the first time in at least 25 years i mean well they're saying it doesn't include women but i would imagine that's less important um the people who he's rallying around him the people who he's basically appointed for the job and that he's surrounding himself with what is that indicative of meaning what does it mean 
from the standpoint of what is government, I always say people are policy. That oftentimes when you put a person in a position, what that person is and what that person represents is indicative of the policy that they are trying to espouse. What does it mean for the various people that he's surrounded himself with, Xi Jinping? Well, I mean, the first thing is that, you know, everybody's going on and on how, how he's, you know, flushed the deck, you know, with his loyalists. As right. Every politician doesn't, you know, invite his loyalists to join him. I mean, would you, uh, would Rishi Sunak, you know, put people who are disloyal to him in, in the position? Of course not. So that's almost like a, 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 a you know, uh, that doesn't give us any information whatsoever. But I think, you know, there's uh, Li Chang, Zhao Liji, Wang Huning. Uh, tai Chi, uh, Ding Shexing, Li Xi. And, you know, these are all known factors. I think the one that is the most surprising, uh, especially for Western pundits, is Li Qiang, who is the Shanghai party chief. He is an MBA, uh, which is unusual. Uh, and also, uh, he, uh, you know, uh, was responsible for, uh, you know, overseeing Shanghai, which many people you know, again, once again, this paranoid world of, uh, you know, China watching people said, well, you know, Shanghai is an anti-Xi. So, uh, you know, there's no way that he could, uh, you know, be uh, he could rise to the top. Certainly not since he bungled, you know, Shanghai's lockdown. But no, I mean, it shows that it shows there is a kind of very forward looking very tech oriented, and there's a continual move towards uh, reform and opening up. I think that's what uh, Li Qiang suggests. Wang Huning is another person who I think is very important. He is uh, sometimes referred to as Xi Jinping's philosopher. He has a deep understanding of philosophy, of Marxism, but also of how the U.S. and China will relate. And, you know, he has bumped up a notch. And so I think that shows that, you know, uh, whatever has been done is being going to continue. And I think the key thing that we should take away from all of this uh, is that Xi Jinping's uh, approach will be a continuation of what has happened before, which will be a continuation of, uh, you know, uh, all the previous, uh, uh, you know, platforms that the party has had, uh, including Jiang Zemin and um, um, Hu Jintao. Uh, and the the thing that I think is important to note in what Xi Jinping has said is that going back to Mao, Mao wrote this important text called On Contradiction, and he talks about identifying the key or the principal contradiction. And in Mao's time, the key contradiction was uh, the relationship between classes. Here, uh, Xi Jinping says that we have identified the principal contradiction, and he uh, he he identifies it as unbalanced and inadequate development, and that closing this gap is the most important thing. In other words, since Deng Xiaoping, they've released the productive forces, they've created wealth, and now what they have to do is create a new form of advancement where they, uh, you know, harmonize this development and put the people first. That is, have common prosperity for all. Um. It's super uh, – go into that for me for a moment. You basically have a communist country. Um, at the very least, they call themselves – what is it? Um, communism with Chinese characteristics or something to that effect. And they had this situation where they were creating super rich, super wealthy in the country, even though the super wealthy wasn't necessarily the ones that was taking charge or in charge. Um, but still, dis despite being a communist country. 
they still ended up with this imbalance of wealth. Even though they brought out 200 million people out of poverty for the last 20 years, that is exceptional um, in regards to a feat to accomplish. Why weren't they able to, let's say, do this more evenly? If that makes if that question makes sense. I mean, all things been equal for it to be a communist country, um, to end up with super wealthy even then, like meaning despite the fact that it's a communist country, the methods by which they were able to pull those people out of wealth still ended up creating disparities in wealth. Why? And what are they doing to try to grapple with this disparity in wealth, if that's indeed the primary contradiction that they identified? Yes, well, I think they're certainly sincere about uh, tackling this issue uh, and that they really want common prosperity. They want harmonious development. They want to get rid of these extraordinary uh, gaps. But that said, I'd say that, you know, China doesn't have a huge difference between the median income uh, and the mean income, which, uh, which is to say that, you know, this notion of, you know, that China has created endless billionaires, etc., is, is a little bit exaggerated. It does have extremely wealthy people. It does have extremely wealthy corporations. Those corporations, China has the largest number of the top 20 uh, capitalized corporations on the planet. What most people don't tell you is the majority of those incredibly wealthy corporations are state-run corporations. We're talking about companies like Sinopec or, you know, the China Industrial Bank. And then once again, if you look at the people who run those corporations, uh, you know, the top leaders of those corporations, they're paid, you know, maybe a salary which is two times, three times their lowest employee, which is completely out of proportion with, say, you know, a U.S. Uh, you know, bank leader who would be paid, you know, uh, 17,000 times what their uh, lowest employees paid. So I think we have to take all of these things into consideration. The fact is that when you unleash the forces, the productive forces, which is what Deng Xiaoping did and then uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao did, uh, you are going to get differentials of wealth, that some people are going to get richer faster than other people, and that this is the job of the government to uh, balance this out and even this out. And uh, Deng Xiaoping said, you know, this is going to take a really long time, and we're going to have to tolerate this for a while. And Xi Jinping is saying, no, no, we have to get rid of this. And also, we have to prevent the corruption that enables this. So the prevention of corruption has been a very, very important part uh, of his, uh, you know, campaign. But uh, essentially, I think that, you know, just as the fact that there are socialists in the United States, if you can call, for example, Bernie Sanders a socialist, just the fact that there are socialists in the United States does not mean that the United States is a socialist country. And just as you have capitalists in China, that does not mean that China is a capitalist uh, country. Uh, it, it hews to the tenets of uh, Marxist-Leninism. <clears throat> it has developed its own form or its own style of development which is uh, market socialism or socialism with Chinese characteristics, it is aiming to have, uh, you know, a fully socialist society. It knows that it's not there yet, but it understands that this is a developmental process, that you have to go through uh, a kind of uh, capitalist market phase 
which allows the development of productive forces, uh, and then you aspire to uh, socialism, and then eventually you have a fully developed socialism that's strong, prosperous, uh, and uh, and uh, scientific and beautiful, etc. It has targets for that within the next uh, several decades. But it understands that right now it's in a proto-socialist form and it's using uh, capitalist forces to help itself deliver at the same time that it's tempering this with a strong intervention of its party leadership. Um, I want to get into something else for the moment. Uh, One of the other things that came out of this, from your take on this, and when you're looking at China and this idea that it is under pressure, especially on the issue of Taiwan, just like it was under pressure on the issue of Hong Kong. Did anything come out of this meeting that deals with this idea of China going forward into the future, pushing back, let's say, against very clear and present adversaries? I mean, regardless of whatever China thinks about itself. I mean, it, it put out the meeting basically saying we're not trying to export. Oh, we're not trying to export ideology to other countries any more than we would accept the ideologies of other countries basically being imported into our country. but. Will they be able to stick to that? I mean, isn't it a situation where the stronger China gets, the more influence it's going to have whether it wants to be a hegemon or, let's say, a second order um, from the U.S. or not? They're basically stuck with it, meaning they're stuck in that boat just as a direct representation of how the U.S. treats and frames um, the Chinese government and its effect in the world itself. What, is, what came out of that meeting in regards to the, how they're going to confront those challenges going forward? Well, they're they're sticking to their line, which is they're not exporting revolution. They're not trying to export their model of uh, development, but they're saying it's open for others to copy us if it works, or rather that they should adapt the elements of you know what works uh, for them. You know, uh, absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and so what they want is a sustainable, mutual. Uh, you know, development, win-win development. They want, uh, you know, mutual security. Um, China is unique in that, you know, if you look at the planet, uh, most of the planet was colonized by the West. Uh, There were probably half a dozen countries that were able to escape this uh, forced uh, colonization and underdevelopment and actually become developed countries. China is one of them, and it developed on its own terms. And it kind of uh, disproved the belief that developing meant that you had to become more Western and more, uh, quote unquote, liberal or liberal democratic. They said, they showed that there is a Chinese way of development and that socialism works. Uh, The other examples, the other countries are you know, two show ponies, uh, capitalist show ponies, Taiwan uh, and uh, South Korea, which are raised uh, as, you know, which were raised in a hothouse. And then you have some island states that were, you know, uh, sui generis, like Singapore or, or you know, various, uh, you know, petro states, etc. So development is really hard, but China has shown proof of concept. You can develop on your own terms. How does that relate to Taiwan Island? Well, the U.S. wants to take down China. China doesn't want to take the bait. Uh, time is on China's side. It's continuing to develop. It's continuing to build relationship. As I said before, it's playing a game of go, which is you build relations in order to 
survive, connect to live. And the U.S. is built, is playing this game of chess. That is, it wants to take down and remove, uh, you know, uh, uh, remove pieces from the board. Uh, and it wants to trigger some kind of gambit that it will use against China uh, to rally other forces and to take China down. China doesn't want to do that. And therefore, its language around Taiwan essentially is boilerplate that it has continued at least since 2002. It's simply repeating the formulas that it said before, peaceful reunification, one country, two systems, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it said it has said that we will not renounce the use of force. But once again, it says that, you know, this is not for against the people on Taiwan Island in general. It's against foreign forces and and the separatists who, who do their bidding. And so I think this is uh, I think this is important. You know, I think it points out that China, it does not have belligerent intentions. Uh, if it does have an increased power and influence, that increased power and influence will be soft power. And I think we have to understand that Chinese are the people who invented soft power for 2,000 years. They've been the greatest soft power on the planet, which is why people eat Chinese food on uh, you know, Christmas, for example. You know? So I think that uh, it's not this kind of realist approach where automatically you know, a country becomes big and then it's starts throwing its weight around and starts bullying other countries. China's history doesn't show that. China's uh, stated doctrine says that it will never do that. And it's reaffirmed that in the 20th Party Congress. And I think most of this is paranoid threat inflation and projection. And it's the West trying to say, look, you know, uh, they're going to treat us the way that we've treated the rest of them. And this is why they're a threat. It's pure and unadulterated projection and threat inflation. Hey, KJ, thanks for <clears throat> sorry, thanks for joining us. It's Malik here. Um, just a question about Chi himself. He's good. He went in a different direction than his predecessor, who only served two terms. Um, so Chi is now going to be going into his third term. But it seems as if that he's kind of extending his rule without any heir apparent. Um, what do you make of his leadership? Because many people are um, arguing that he essentially is consolidating the CCP in a way that we haven't seen since Mao. Um, what do you think of just him, just if you could project out, um, you know, I guess the next five years for him, what do you see happening? Because there are some concerns that this consolidation that he's doing, kind of abandoning um, things that have been happening before, that is not necessarily good for China. But what do you make of that? Well, I think, um, you know, uh, to be honest, I think it's a mischaracterization mm. uh, of the Chinese leaders, uh, Mao, Zhang, um, uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, uh, and Xi Jinping now, the, the fifth leader. Only Hu Jintao had uh, a 10-year term correctly that we can, uh, you know, point out. And I would point out that, you know, there are 49 other leaders around the world who had terms that are longer than uh, Xi Jinping, you know, including, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu and Angela Merkel, etc. So just the length of the term itself uh, is, is an, you know, is, is not very indicative. Uh, I think it is true that he did not designate an heir apparent, but we are very, very early 
you know, in his third term. So he may still uh, designate somebody or he may uh, try for a fourth term. I think if he does designate somebody, there's a good chance it might be Li Chang, the Shanghai party chief, or it could be Wang Huning, you know, who is kind of the uh, philosophical, you know, uh, brain behind the party at the current moment. Uh, And I think that um, as far as the current moment is, I think there is such an extraordinary pressure against China right now. There is such an extraordinary escalation uh, in of both uh, subkinetic, uh, pre-kinetic war against China, a cold war against China, that I think that he sees the need, and I think the party agrees, they see the need for stability and continuity rather than giving up to or, you know, encouraging various factions that might be used to try and break China up uh, the way that uh, the Soviet Union was broken up. So I think there's a kind of rallying round uh, and almost a a little bit of garrisoning to prevent, uh, you know, the centrifugal forces from having their way. And I think that's the key issue. I think if that were to go away, if China were to be allowed to develop uh, uh, normally, uh, which the U.S. is clearly trying to prevent, for example, with its semiconductor sanctions, then uh, then I think there'll be a, a real kind of softening uh, at, uh, of the top, uh, the top leadership. Basically, they're being hard because pressure is being applied to them that forces them to behave that way. I mean, I mean, I, I'm curious on this front. All things being equal, what is the public's perspective of this? I mean, oftentimes we don't necessarily get the take of the Chinese public in any sense. We just, Xi Jinping is a dictator, he's a strong man, the public is um, lemmings, et cetera, et cetera. What's the reality of this, though, on the ground? How is the public perceiving this third term of Xi Jinping? What is his popularity like in the country? Um, I think a recent uh, poll, which was done by um, American University, I I want to say Rutgers, but I'd have to check on that. A uh, most recent poll done by an uh, American university says that his popularity, his support in the population is 98%. That was 2021. And then prior to that, uh, there was a longitudinal study done by Harvard University. Uh, and that was a very, very long-term study. And that showed that his support was around 92%. The central government's uh, support was about 92%. And so what you're seeing is extraordinary, extraordinary levels of support uh, in the population. And it makes sense. Just, you know, the sheer level of development of people seeing their lives improving. Uh, You know, currently they live longer than the United States. They see that their children are three inches taller, you know, than they were a decade ago. Everything is moving in the right direction. In the cities right now, as opposed to the countryside, in the cities right now, I think there's a bit of lockdown fatigue. So I think some of the more uh, middle class, uh, wealthier groups are critical of Xi. But overall, uh, you know, taking an unbiased statistical sample, it shows this incredible support. And I think it speaks to, uh, you know, CPC's own, uh, you know, argument that, you know, the best guarantor of democracy uh, is performance legitimacy. 
basically doing good for the public and the public sees it. So the public responds with favorable favorability of the government itself. 92% sounds extremely high. There's not opposition parties in China? Um, the, China is a single party state. Right. But I don't mean a party in the traditional sense. I just mean in, like um, any groups that are in China that are in opposition to the government itself. Well, there are eight different parties. Uh, this is this is not their time. This is just the Communist Party gathering. This is, you know, the 101st uh, 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 year of the existence of the Communist Party, and so this is the 20th quinquennial gathering. But uh, in in the fall, sorry, in the spring of next year, uh, there will be the National People's Congress and the uh, the the Lianghui, the two congresses. It's kind of like a lower house and an upper house gathering. Uh, so that happens in in the spring, and that's where they work out all the details of legislation. And there you will see the eight other Chinese parties uh, be part of the uh, you know national congress. And there the CPC only has two thirds of the seats, and the other third go to the other parties and independents. So it does have varying voices. And then even inside the CPC itself, you know, there are different trends and different voices that exist. And some trend more Western and more liberal, and others trend more, you know, kind of orthodox uh, Marxist-Leninist. Others trend more orthodox Maoist. So there are different voices, different trends. But I think at the end of the day, they come together in a kind of democratic centralism, and they speak with one voice. And so everything that leads up to a party congress is just a kind of a working out of differences, you know, uh, you know, uh, months and months of dialogue and deliberation so that they can come out with uh, a uniform platform. KJ, we have about a minute left, and I was trying to find the quote, and I want you to respond to it. But Blinken basically said that China could invade Taiwan over the course of next year. Yes, I mean, it's uh, absurd. First, the Chinese have never said that. Uh, second, uh, it's the U.S., which is clearly trying to provoke uh, China into taking rapid action on uh, Taiwan Island, especially with the uh, TPA, the Taiwan Policy Act, which is essentially it's a declaration of war. It's one of the most belligerent acts uh, that has ever been written uh, related to China, essentially turning it into uh, a U.S. military base uh, and, uh, you know, an unsinkable aircraft carrier. And it also threatens sanctions against China. So the provocation is on the part of the U.S., not China. Pure projection again. KJ, always appreciate you joining us, man. KJ No, he's a journalist, political analyst, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. He's a contributor to the book Capitalism on a Ventilator, once censored by Amazon. It is now available at iacenter.org. We have put another one into the record books. You can hear the music in the background. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank uh, Malik Abdul. I want to thank all of our callers. I want to thank all of our listeners, whether it's on Rumble or, for that matter, on the radio. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Radio Sputnik will be back bright and early tomorrow morning. Hump day. See you soon. Have a good one, guys. Fault Lines.